Aquaman and Firestorm fighting crime together. So come down or burn them up. No one does it better. Whenever you find trouble, they'll always be there to catch them in a bubble or even torch their hair. They stand for truth and justice and see a land in there. Aquaman and Firestorm, they make a super pair. Aquaman and Firestorm, super friends forever. Yeah! Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Fire and Water Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag, and my usual co-host, Rob Kelly, is off this week due to a bad case of tuna fish poisoning. Man, I mean, that's just karma coming back at you as for the world's biggest Aquaman fan. Anyway, instead this week, we have got a very special guest, folks. You have already heard this guy's voice on our show over and over, possibly close to 250 times. And I'm not exaggerating. How do I know this? Because this is the guy who sings our closing theme song, which, by the way, you just heard at the beginning of the show because I decided to play it for the special occasion. And he sings the theme to our Who's Who podcast. Now, between belting out our little ditties, this gentleman, and I use the term loosely, serves as a lead singer for bands such as the Bad Mamma Jammas, Carter Road, and Pop Fiction. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Mr. Daniel Cynical Adams. How you doing, buddy? Hello. Hello, Cleveland. <laughs> Man, we have been talking to you since before the podcast ever started. Been saying we got to get you on the show, and we finally found a way to bring you out of your little rock and roll cave to come join us. Thank you. Indeed, I'm happy to be here. We all got together when I was held as prisoner of war in Memphis, Tennessee, but I escaped, and now I'm here. <laughs> I was going to do something about having to drag you off the stage with all the girls trying to pull you back. I mean, it's it's difficult to do. <laughs> Women are tenacious at a rock show. I could only imagine. I've seen the movie. And I've seen your luscious, luscious hair. So, I mean, that just goes with it, too. <laughs> well, let's hope it sticks around. What is it about you singers? You and Luke Dobb both just have gorgeous hair. I hate you for it. I don't know, man. I can't compete with Luke, though. Luke's on another level, man. That quaff is legendary. There's no doubt about it that. It is. It's outrageous. It looks like he drew it, which... <laughs> I think he may have. It's quite possible. He could have like that magic pencil from Amazing Stories. Uh, I actually am old enough to remember what that is. <laughs> well, folks, all right. So what is so special to bring Daniel on this show? Well, here's the deal. You know, our network is all about find your joy, right? Well, I want to find my joy. I want to love and be happy and find joy in the DC films, meaning the, the films produced by DC Comics. Some of them I do enjoy. Some of them I really, really don't. And I just wish I could love them more. And if you've ever been on the internet, and I'm sorry if you have, the DC movies certainly seem to get a really bad rap there. So thinking, how do I find my joy with the DC movies? Who do I know that absolutely loves these movies? Who is the first guy I text late at night? No, not a booty call. Text late at night after watching one of these DC movies in the theater? It's Daniel. Who would be willing to stand up and say, damn it, I love these movies, and here's why. It's Daniel. So the goal of this episode is to find actual complaints and gripes from the internet, these random faceless people, uh, people have complained about DC movies, and give these, these challenges to Daniel and give him a chance to share to us a more positive viewpoint. So, folks, I'm calling this The People versus DC Films. Are you up to the challenge, sir? Oh, I'm up for the challenge. I would hope so. I've given you like six months to prepare, so geez. I'm up for the challenge of the unknown. Uh, I thought you were going to say the challenge of the super friends. Well, that too. Yeah, see, if you were quicker on the uptake, you could have done it. Oh, well. I'm flexible. I'm flexible. 
flexible on all challenges. It's the spandex you wear on stage that make you so flexible. Well, they they do. They provide lots of room and maneuverability, <laughs> and they're shiny. You sound like a commercial. <laughs> I can tell you where to find them. And that's why superheroes wear them, I think, probably. Absolutely. Do you think Superman wears those just because he thinks it makes him look regal? No, the chicks dig the tights. <laughs> Lois is a pretty good catch, so I mean they must have worked. Now, before this conversation goes too deep into uh, the way spandex fits people, let's just steer away from that conversation and take a moment to thank our sponsors, which I'm sure they really appreciate that segue. Folks, this episode of the Fire & Water Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, Daniel, as you're the guest, you're not required to bring an InStock trades recommendation however all the cool kids do usually so did you happen to bring one i did ah look at that a guest who brings a recommendation suck it bailey that's awesome all right so why don't you tell the people at home what you got well unlike michael bailey i went to instocktrades.com <laughs> and ordered hawkman by jeff johns trade paperback book one Ooh. i would have bought the whole run but i don't have that kind of money right now musician right but <laughs> This is one of my favorite DC runs of all time. Jeff Johns took one of my favorite characters, my number three all time, by the way, Hawkman. Okay. And reinvented him. He somehow did the impossible. He took all of that screwed up continuity for decades and somehow found a way to make it all make sense. Yes, he did. And it's absolutely beautiful. So I highly recommend it. And it was only $17.39. It's regularly $29.99. That is a heck of a steal. It is. What issues does that reprint? Let's see. 1 through 14 and as a bonus Hawkman Secret Files number 1 nice I love that series that was a great run and it really as you said it really fixed Hawkman it was a good fixer if you will it did and Rags Morales absolutely killed it on the art yes he did yes he did and not to diverge too far from that I've heard the current Hawkman series is also a great fixer for the Hawkman continuity which is pretty cool too I really hope so I've been out of it for a while but I've been looking to get back into that as well as Grant Morrison's Green Lantern run, which oh, I yeah. bought the first issue, but I haven't had a chance to read it yet because again, okay. musician. <laughs> 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 but I've heard good things about Hawkman, and I want to get back in. I remember when the new 52 brought him back, and I remember the day that I walked into the comic book shop, and they informed me that Rob Liefeld <laughs> was doing Hawkman, and I told him, you can take my money for this book, and then you can put it back on your shelf, <laughs> because <laughs> I don't want any more. <laughs> I stayed around for many months. I tried, so... and You're yeah. a better man than I. Well, the new series, I'm getting, I've heard lots of great uh, reviews from my buddy Joe Tonello was telling me how good it is. Issues 2, 3, 4, and 5 are on the shelf at my comic shop this weekend but he didn't have number one so I decided I'm going to wait oh. for the, I'm going to wait for the trade so I can't wait so but regardless alright so let me tell you my in stock trades pick I picked a great one here it is Justice League trade paperback volume three Throne of Atlantis now this is from the new 52 era of Justice League this is a fantastic story it's an Aquaman centric Justice League story written by Jeff John same guy that wrote yours with art by Ivan Priest and Joe Prado I mean the guys are just amazing amazing art and it's this really cool story basically about you know Atlantis attacking the surface world and how Aquaman fits in this role between the Justice League and as involved in Atlantis 
and it's a fantastic tale. It's 192 pages, full color. Normally retails for $16.99, but you can get it 42% off, which is only $9.85. Less than 10 bucks for an awesome story. And this was also the wow. basis of the animated movie uh, that they did. It was. Yeah. Which is almost as good as the comic run. Almost as good, true. But the comic run, I mean, just nothing yeah. beats this. It's another level. There's an Aquaman version of the trade as well. Like this one is the Justice League version of the trade. It includes Justice League 13 through 17 and Aquaman 15 and 16. There's an Aquaman version which has more issues of Aquaman and less of Justice League. But I recommend this. And um, Firestorm's in it too. So it's an awesome little fire and water combination. Fantastic. Well, for these and all of your other trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. All right, folks. It is now time for the main event. What you are witnessing is real. The participants are not actors. They are actual geeks who are holding a grudge. Both parties have agreed to dismiss their whinings and have their disputes settled here in our forum. The People versus DC Films. Alright folks, we are about to get rolling, but we want to hear from you. We want you to share your thoughts in the comments. Go out to fireandwaterpodcast.com, go up to the shows button and find the Aquaman and Firestorm show. Leave your comments there. However, remember, this is the Fire and Water Podcast Network where we are all about building a community of friends and sharing what we love. This is not Reddit. This is not the CBR message boards. This is not the old DC Comics message boards. This is not a wretched hive of scum and villainy, folks. I expect you to be civil. Feel free to share opposing viewpoints. That's fine. You can tell Daniel why you don't agree with them. That's fine. However, anyone that gets nasty in the comments section, especially nasty comments directed at other commenters, I will delete you and I will ban folks. I am a vengeful podcast god. Don't test me, people. So... We can have a civil discourse without getting nasty. It is possible, believe it or not. With that threat made officially and everyone's quaking in their podcasting earbuds, let's get rolling on this. So the way we're going to do this, folks, is we are going to go through the DC films. And I have gone out on the interwebs and gone to various websites and pulled comments that seem to uh, be repeating or, or thoughts that seem to come up a lot. And so we're going to address it movie by movie. We're going to hit a couple of points each movie. Daniel is going to share his thoughts with us on why he disagrees with the comments on the internet. And then um, because it's probably the most controversial of all films, we're going to say Batman versus Superman for the end. Isn't that fair to say, sir? Yeah. <laughs> He's very verbose, this Daniel guy, huh? That's an understatement. <laughs> well, let's do it. So the very first one from the uh, DC Films was Man of Steel from 2013. So this is going to come from Reddit. Again, a wretched hive of scum and villainy. For those of you who are on Reddit, I uh, forgive me for what I've said, but you know it to be true as well. The main complaint that you hear a lot about Man of Steel is that it's too dark. Now, here comes a specific comment from one of the threads. Superman, their flagship hero, is supposed to embody hope, passion, love, and humanity to the world. Instead, they made him into a brooding Batman with superpowers, not to mention a killer. The entire aura of Superman is just dark, and it doesn't represent what he's meant to be at all. I haven't even seen the sun in Metropolis, not once. That's bad. All right, Daniel, the people have spoken. This quote did not come from me. It came from some faceless person on the internet. How would you respond to the Man of Steel being too dark? Well, first off, as Prince has already stated before he passed away, the internet is dead. So it really doesn't matter what they think. But I right. humor you. So I personally happen to consider Man of Steel a very hopeful film. 
I know that seems shocking because everyone seems to focus on how dour and cynical it is or whatever. I would argue that the world around Kal-El is pretty dark and pretty cynical. However, he is not. He is a pure, caring, hopeful boy who wants to help people at any cost, but he has unfortunately found himself in a world that isn't quite that simple. It's a more realistic world than we're used to seeing him in, and that forces him to make some hard decisions. Hmm. Okay. Mm. <laughs> okay. So would you agree or disagree about or explain maybe Zack Snyder uses, you know, the there's all this talk about the filters, right? On this, how everything's sure. dark. So was that him just, was that Snyder just trying to show us the world? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, a little bit. Because if you notice, Superman himself is pretty bright. Like his costume is pretty bright, even though the colors on it are muted compared mm-hmm. to everything else that he comes in contact with. He's practically glowing. I mean, he's way brighter than everything else. Okay. Okay. It's not like he had as dark reds as some of the promotional material. Like, uh, we're not at that movie yet, but in BVS, when they first showed you Wonder Woman, yeah, you couldn't see any color at all in that right. costume, in that promo image. Yeah, But in the actual movie, it was a lot brighter. So, yeah, I, I just... I think that's more perception rather than actual reality. I don't think it's nearly as dark as people remember it being. And there's a lot of sunlight in Metropolis, by the way. Also in Smallville. (laughs) Okay. Just for the record, even when the tornado comes later on in the movie, it's pretty bright. I've seen tornadoes. (laughs) They happen here all the time. It's never that bright during a tornado. (laughs) All right. Well, I, I'll give you. I remember one scene when he when he's uh, on the like I guess it's a glacier or whatever, and he's yeah. it's, they're going to show the flight for the first time, and he puts his fist down on the ground and the Beautiful. the rocks are floating. That does give you a real big sense of hope. It really does. Yeah. It's it's pretty dramatic. Yeah. It's pretty exciting. It is pretty uplifting. Now I'm going to put you on the spot. G- give me another example of Superman doing the heroic thing, the the the, the non dark heroic thing in that movie. Give me one more example, just so I've got something. <laughs> Okay. Uh, well, when he's saving the guys on the oil, what, do, what would you call that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The oil rig. Yeah. The oil rig. Gosh. Oh, my. Yeah. When he's saving the guys on the oil rig, it's not a bright scene. There's not a lot of sun. Well, I guess there is when the fire explodes. Right. <laughs> that is that is definitely a hopeful, uplifting moment. Because That's true. Okay. He throws away his entire career at that point, which you later find out he's done this time and time again. So he's sacrificing everything as he's traveling around the world because he considers helping other people more important than him being able to pay his bills, put clothes on his back, and eat food. Okay. All right. I'll give you that. That's a good one. All right. Now... Just to be picky, I will say he wasn't in the Superman suit at the time, but that was Kal-El giving us a very hopeful moment. All right. I'm with you on that. Well, that's another that's another point about this film. Oh, yeah? He's proto-Superman. He's not really Superman until that film ends. Hmm. I would argue he's not really Superman until he comes back in Justice League. But we'll get to all that. Okay. Fair enough. I, I could kind of feel where you're going there. All right. So let's talk about Zod's death, right? Everyone talks about Superman killing Zod, and everyone talks about the reasons behind it. So here is another um, section of commentary from that wretched hive of scum and villainy, Reddit. They write, it's not that Superman made entirely terrible choices given his options, but that it was lazy writing that put him in those ridiculous positions. Sure, killing Zod was necessary in the moment, but what was Zod doing? Why should Zod care to make Superman violate his code? Zod isn't the Joker. In the Joker's mind, if he makes Batman kill him, then he wins. His goal is to prove that everyone else is faking social 
mores, and deep down they're as broken as he is. Zod doesn't care about that. He wants to rule the world, specifically transform the world into Krypton as much as possible. His goal is domination. Making him suicidal is terrible writing. Confusing him with the Joker in any sense was a serious misstep in Nolan's Superman. All right, the people have spoken. Daniel, what do you say? So I feel like there's a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of projection in those comments. Okay. I would say it is not lazy writing. It is purposeful writing. They didn't get to the end of the movie and go, oh, no, what do we do with Zod? Well, I guess he'd better kill them. (laughs) Okay. Everything's leading to that point. Zod, for instance, his goal wasn't to rule the world or even dominate humanity. He just wanted people gone. His goal was to defend his people. In his mind, Krypton had to be rebuilt no matter what the cost. Humans are insects to him. We aren't people. We're not family. We're not even his species. He couldn't (laughs) care less. They're between him and his goal, and it's incredibly frustrating to him that one of his own has been conditioned to care for these insects. Mm. He's a soldier who finds himself with no home, no future, no people, and the crushing reality that he failed those people. That's why he was suicidal at the end of the movie. He wasn't suicidal until every single option had been taken away from him, and it became quite clear that Cal was not going to do what he wanted him to do. So Cal's holding the future of Krypton hostage in his own bloodstream, and Zod has no other options. So they're at a stalemate. Okay, It's either my way is going to go or your way is going to go. So Zod was literally created to be the way he is. He was genetically engineered to be what he is. Unlike Cal, who was conceived naturally, Zod didn't have a choice. I don't understand the Joker angle that this commenter is trying to take as Superman had no code to violate. He doesn't have a no-kill rule yet. He has no reason to have such a thing. Hmm. He didn't magically have a no-kill rule just because. (laughs) He learned (laughs) that from Zod. Zod experienced the haunting pain of murdering his former friend Jor-El, and he explained the impact of that action to Cal earlier in the film. And then at the end, he passes that lesson on to Kal-El. So in a way, it was his last bit of revenge against the L family. Zod's death was now going to haunt Superman forever, literally and figuratively, as we would later find out. Interesting. Also imparting wisdom to him. So in a way, he's being the good uncle that he's supposed to be, in a sense. And then he's also getting that last jab in. And... If you want to tie it to the Donner movies in a a weird kind of meta way, he says, you'll kneel before me, you and your heirs, right? Mm -hmm. Well, as soon as Superman kills Zod, which he didn't want to do, and he feels miserable, the first thing he does is hit his knees and scream in pain. Oh, interesting. Okay. I don't know that I put that together uh, about the kneeling, that's for sure. It's an interesting thought that Zod... So I'm processing all your answers here, so forgive me if I'm just parroting what you just said. But So Zod forced Cal to kill him as a form of punishment against the House of L because he knew it would torment him like it tormented him killing Jor-El. Interesting. Okay. He planted those seeds earlier when he explained to him what that did to himself. Okay. Wow. So if your defense were to hold up, then Schneider's put a lot of depth in here that I didn't see. Okay. Well, you're going to hear a lot of that as we go along. <laughs> I imagine most, I will. <laughs> but the most important thing is Superman now does have a no-kill rule, but there's a reason for it. Yeah. He's seen with his own eyes, he's felt with his own hands what that's like and what that truly means. See, before he was just saving people because they were weaker than him. Right. With Zod, he actually had to overpower someone and end their life. It's just a, it's a different kind of thing. It's like the difference between euthanizing one of your pets or trying to make sure they're not getting run over by a car 
and beating up your neighbor for stealing your weed eater or whatever and beating him to death. Yeah. No, I get get it. No, it makes a lot of sense, actually, because, I mean, also, we just take for granted the whole no-kill thing. Well, other than Superman grew up as a nice person, he's got all these powers, though. Why why wouldn't killing be on the table if he was able to do it? Well, he had to have a reason to not want to do it. Okay. All right. I like that. I like that. All right. Because it's true. (laughs) I like the confidence. All right. (laughs) Overruled. Uh, All right. The next thing is... Uh, Jonathan Kent. A lot of talk about Jonathan Kent. Now, this comes from Wired.com. All right. So, Wired.com says, Remember Superman's adoptive Earth dad, Jonathan Kent, who was proud of Clark no matter what, who coached him on being a good person and true to who he was in doing what he could to help people? Well, in the movie Man of Steel, Jonathan Kent is killed by a suitably cinematic tornado 20 feet from his adopted son, who simply stands and watches him. Why doesn't Clark save him? Pa tells him not to, because people are looking. This is the man who's traditionally held up as a source of Superman's moral code and imperative to heroism. So what kind of a Superman do you get with a Jonathan Kent who raises him with more paranoia than pride and actually disapproves when Clark risks discovery to rescue a school bus full of kids from drowning? Now, I gotta tell you, this one bothered me too, Daniel, when I watched the movie. So the people have spoken. How would you respond? I would respond that Superman, or Clark at this point, he gets his empathy and his care for other people, his desire to want to do good from his mother. She's the one that's out front, hard on her sleeve. You know, she's the one that comes to school and teaches him how to control his powers to get Mm -hmm. him out of that closet when he's freaking out. She's the one that, that gives the love. His father is the one that gives him direction and discretion. See, unlike in the comics... Or a lot of the comics. Maybe Burns comics. But unlike the Donner films, Man of Steel's Pa Kent doesn't live in idyllic, mythical 1950s Kansas. No he bad. lives in a world where the U.S. military would capture and experiment on his young boy and then raise him to be a weapon. So either one, they would tear him to part trying to figure out his DNA if they could and recreate him, make a Superboy clone, whatever. Or they would try to pull a Red Sun and turn him into the most powerful weapon the world had ever known that is brainwashed into carrying, you know, whatever his government's wishes were. Sure. Uh, that is a very real concern. And Pa can't do anything about that. That's just reality. And he's got this child who could be the most important thing to ever happen to humanity that he's got to protect. So Pa Kent never once told Clark that you should let those kids die. He said maybe when Clark asked him. He didn't say yes. He said maybe. And he clearly wasn't comfortable while doing so. His lesson wasn't that Clark shouldn't save people. His lesson was that good deeds also have consequences. Bad deeds obviously have consequences. But even when you do the right thing, there are still consequences. And you have to consider those. He also imparted the lesson that Clark was here for a reason and meant for things greater than saving a few school children. Now, that may seem cold, but that's the fact. If Superman, Clark Kent, Kal-El, if he had saved those kids and someone found out about it, the news got a hold of it, the government showed up with black helicopters taking him away, what would the world have done when Zod showed up with his crew? True. Where would we have been? So, Pa Kent couldn't fathom a Zod, but he knew something could happen. And he knew that Clark would be the key for whatever it was. So, with the entire world eventually being at stake, presumably, Clark needs to be free to act when it happens. It's a hard lesson because it's a hard world. And as BVS would later teach us, things aren't black and white. Life doesn't usually evolve in binary fashion, and answers just aren't always simple. Hmm. All right. I, I, I will give you that's a suitable 
response for why Pocket acted the way he did. It doesn't sit well with me, not going to lie, because I, lo- I, well, I love the post-crisis version of Pocket. Kent. I love the, even the Lois and Clark, New Adventures of Superman version of Pa Kent, where Clark goes home, visits with his dad, and his dad is his, you know, ethical compass, essentially, all the time. Mm-hmm. And this is very, a very different version, so that does make it harder for me to swallow, but you make very valid points for this, this iteration of Jonathan Kent. Hmm. Yeah, it's quite different. It's it's like they split those lessons between mom and dad, and I think that works. And as uh, as we'll get into later, mothers are very important to this universe. So you're talking about his mother. You you mean Martha? Yes. <laughs> See, that's your cue to say why did I say that the name? Legendarily, <laughs> legendary Martha. But yeah. Okay. All right. Let's go into our final point for Man of Steel. And there, sure, there's a lot more stuff. You might be sitting at home going, but wait, what about this, this, and this? Well, we had to sort of cherry pick the comments because we've got a lot of movies to go through. So uh, this will be the last one. This is a big one, though. The destruction of Metropolis was talked about by a lot of people, including myself. I'll, I'll share some commentary on this and when after I read the quote here. This comes from Escapist Magazine, their forum. And this person wrote, the problem with the fight was that for most people, it seems like Superman didn't even bother trying to drag Zod out of Metropolis. He could have just sniped him from afar with heat vision, forcing Zod to come after him and get out of the city. Instead, it looks like Superman actually used the city itself against Zod, slamming him into buildings. So that's what the people say. I will go ahead and share my quick thoughts. And then I've got a, I guess it's like a meme of sorts to to share or a pictogram to share. But my thoughts when I walked out of the theater was I felt like, you know, if they're going to destroy Metropolis like that, they should probably make me care about the city first. Because I didn't really feel like I cared about the city of Metropolis at that point. I felt like I cared about some of the characters, but I didn't necessarily feel like I cared about the city. So according to this pictogram here from... BuzzFeed, they list out damages uh, estimates to Metropolis in the Man of Steel. Their estimates were 129,000 people dead, 250,000 missing, and 1 million people injured. That's crazy. I mean, think about the Twin Towers. We lost, what, uh, 3,000, something like that, uh, people? 129,000 confirmed dead. The impact was comparable to the Nagasaki nuke. Monetarily, it cost $750 billion in physical damage. And it says 9-11 was $55 billion. So then, this is $750 billion. The simulated Avengers damage in Manhattan was $160 billion. So this far outstrips that as well. Overall impact is, what is this, Two. I don't know. I don't even know how many. This it's button. There's twelve zeros here, so I don't know how many that is. So a lot of money. So okay, Daniel, destruction of Metropolis. The people have spoken. The numbers have spoken. I've spoken. What do you say? Well, I would say that Zod was the one using Metropolis as a weapon because Zod was using Superman's feelings towards the people, his concern for the people, as a way to keep him fighting, to keep him distracted to keep him doing things. Zod knew, hey, if we kill a few hundred thousand people in this fight, that's just less people we have to wipe out later. <laughs> so True. I would also say the Superman in both the Smallville fight and the Metropolis fight repeatedly tried to direct the fight away from civilians. And if you go back and watch the movie mm-hmm. and you break it down, because it does happen really fast. Zack Snyder is like, he directs live action films like it's an anime. So <laughs> always, always changes and cuts and, and like, it's just madness, which is good because that's what a fight 
between two superpowered super speed villains or, or beings would be like. So Superman was fighting a literal army led by a man literally bred for war. Superman had zero training and no combat experience. He was in way, way over his head against people who shared his supernatural abilities. So he wasn't fighting an earthbound army. He was fighting Kryptonians who were developing the exact same powers he had who were all trained to fight, and he hasn't got a clue, because his dad didn't even let him punch kids when he was a kid, because, well, <laughs> he would have turned them into dust. True. Okay? He let a guy pour a beer over his head, because he knew he couldn't punch him without killing him, or probably disintegrating him. So he took it out on his log truck, which was awesome. But I agree. <laughs> Each time he tried to fly away, or lure Zod away, he was pulled back, because Zod's whole strategy was to stay in Metropolis. He knew that Superman was desperately going to want to move him away, but he wasn't going to let him. Because one, it was making his frustration go up, which is throwing his tactical abilities off. And he was getting him flustered and getting him angry. It just makes him easier to pick apart because Todd's a professional. He's a general. Superman was outpowered, outclassed, and outstrategized. His sheer will was the only thing that kept him in the fight. And then uh, I hear a lot of complaints about the disaster porn and how, oh, mm. they did so much damage to Metropolis. First right. Of course they did. It was Superman versus Zod. <laughs> the Death of Superman was recently released by DC's animation department, and it is being universally praised. It was awesome. It was phenomenal. Oh, I it was. That. It was way better than Superman Doomsday. Dear God. Yes, yes. <laughs> the only good thing about that movie is Kevin Smith's cameo. <laughs> Mechanical Spider. Yeah, this mechanical spider for the win. Superman the Animated Series is beloved. Superman comics are held as the standard for Superman stories. Superman 2 is considered a classic that Man of Steel supposedly didn't live up to. Yet all... All of these, every one of these, contain comparable or more destruction when Superman fights Zod or Doomsday, yet it's suddenly a problem when it's in a Zack Snyder movie. That hmm. is unacceptable. And that is also dishonest. Interesting. Okay. Pretty strong position coming out of their swing in there, sir. All right. Well, I'll tell you, and this wraps up our Man of Steel coverage. We're going to move on to the next movie in a second. You've given me some points to think about. You truly have. I am willing to rewatch this movie with a little more fresh eyes. Certainly, uh, the Pa Ken aspect of it, the the Zod's death, really gives me a lot to think about. And now I'm also going to be watching for brightness and stuff. Now, the destruction of Metropolis, it does happen. You're right. It's just a matter of how we interpret it compared to what we've seen in other places. So uh, we'll leave it to you people at home to add your comments again on the website and let us know what you think, whether Daniel made some good points or at least gave you something to think about, which is really what this, the point of this all is, because we want to find our joy. We want to find reasons to love these movies more. Okay, going on to the next movie from DC. Now, remember, we're saving BVS for the end. So the next one is Suicide Squad from 2016. And I will say, Daniel, good luck with this one. So the, <laughs> let me just put this right on the table up front. We all agree. Margot Robbie, smoking hot. Okay, there are no complaints there. That's not a problem. All right. The first thing that you hear a lot about with Suicide Squad is the reshoots and the editing. Everyone talks about this. So this uh, this next comment from the people comes from reddit.com. And they say, when watching, I could clearly tell the parts of the first shoots and the reshoots just based on the tone. This movie is one half grid dark DC expanded universe about a literal suicide squad and messed up individuals and one half a wannabe Guardians of the Galaxy and switches between literally from shot to shot. The fun parts are all reshoots basically. So Daniel, 
the people have spoken. And, I, you know, I, this could even be expanded to the trailer. You know, of course, there's a lot of talk about the way the trailer was cut and everything. What do you think? This might surprise you, but I don't completely disagree with that assessment. Okay. I love this movie. Absolutely love this movie. Somebody has to, so that's fair. Well, sure. My niece, it's her favorite movie ever. She's six. <laughs> so wow. do the math on how old she was when she saw it. <laughs> <laughs> Great parenting taking her to this. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm not her dad. <laughs> She watches it, I kid you not, every single day. Really? She can quote the movie from start to finish. <laughs> yeah, that is a real thing. She That's pretty cool. It. Yeah, she is all about some Harley Quinn. <laughs> okay. All right. That's so, not necessarily a role model I want for my daughter, but okay. <laughs> so my response to this criticism is pretty much WB's gonna WB. David Ayer wanted to make an edgy, gritty, dark comedy action film of sorts like he tends to do, which probably would have been great. And then Warner Brothers wanted a Guardians of the Galaxy sponsored by Hot Topic, which I could also (laughs) really be into because that's my thing. I'm down. But then they kicked David Ayer out of the editing room and had the team who edited the well-received trailers cut the film like it's a music video or something, which I'm also really into. So... (laughs) They were, they were going to have to work pretty hard to make me not like this movie. Because <laughs> allegedly there are as many as nine different versions of this movie out there. And I want to see and own every single one of them. Wow. Uh, maybe it's because I'm ADHD, but I absolutely love this movie and how it jumps all over the place. The tone bounces around. The motion is frantic. It moves really fast. I really dig it. And a large portion of the audience must have agreed because it defied all box office expectations. It made nearly as much money as Guardians of the Galaxy made without the benefit of opening in China. And I remember when the movie came out, all the bad reviews came in and the the supposed fans of the material just, you know, crapped all over. It's the worst. It's so stupid. Yet it kept making money. Now, if it had opened huge and then trailed off and died... We could have an argument of, oh, well, it didn't find an audience. But people forget for at least the summer and a good bit of the fall, it captured the zeitgeist. Everybody at Halloween, everybody was either some form of Harley Quinn or Deadshot or somebody. I saw Captain Boomerangs in the wild. (laughs) Like, outside of Comic-Con, saw people on purpose dressing as Captain Boomerang. Did you ever think in your life you would experience that? Because I did. That's insane. Now, if they didn't have a cream pie with them, then it's uh, it's a total fail. But they wouldn't know that. <laughs> they only know that from the comics. <laughs> to me, to me, Suicide Squad is smoking aces, if you've ever seen that movie. Mm-hmm. But with DC yeah. characters instead. The film isn't about story or creative film techniques, but it's about the interactions between the characters. To me, all the characters involved were pitch perfect and they existed in a world that was the most accurate representation of the DC universe that I grew up reading I've ever seen up to that point Hmm. Suicide Squad is the DC film I've rewatched more than any other film of any kind I think Wayne's World I've watched more that might be it (laughs) it's just so funny It's so much fun. It's quotable and it's quirky and it has its own vibe. These zany characters are dumped into a cage with each other and they're forced to cope. Everybody eventually learns that their snap judgments of everyone else were incorrect and that their unwanted compatriots had more depth than they assumed, which I kind of feel applies to a lot of these movies. So it's meta like that. Enemies were forced to become allies and it led to a lot of really good moments. Plus, Captain Boomerang made the whole movie worth watching for me. He was absolutely incredible. And Amanda Waller may be the most ruthless villain we have ever seen in a comic book film and she doesn't even have any power 
Okay. Well, you make a lot of good points here. A lot of things I agree with right out of the gate. I agree Amanda Waller was great. Uh, I really liked this version of Harlequin. Uh, I dug, surprisingly, well, okay, Captain Boomerang, yes, was also incredibly well done. He was sort of like probably a halfway step between the Suicide Squad version and maybe even the Identity Crisis version. Like a half step in between those two, and that's right what what he was on the screen, which is well done. And Deadshot really surprised me because... I was not in favor of Will Smith playing Deadshot. And in many ways, I feel like he was still playing Will Smith, but he found a way to make it work. I I, I agree. I completely agree. I had all those same feelings about him. Yeah. It's it's not my Deadshot from the John Ostrander comics, but, but there's a version of Deadshot somewhere in there that I can get on board with. I agree with that. Not really there with Diablo. Not really there with Killer Croc. Who am I forgetting? Oh, well, we'll talk about Enchantress in a minute. But uh, <laughs> Well, I loved Killer Croc. I... Partially just because, holy crap, we got a Killer Croc in live action. <laughs> That's true. And he looked like Killer Croc. He acted he, like Killer Croc. Like, oh my God. He looked like he the old school people. Killer Croc. That's true. He did. Oh yeah. my God. The crazy file down teeth and everything. Oh, that was that was fantastic. I mean, whoever thought we'd see that? And dude, dude, this episode would be a complete waste if we didn't bring up the fact that Slipknot <laughs> is a movie star because of this film. <laughs> Slipped. Okay, see, that's where I got to take it down a peg because, you know, for those of you who might be listening for the first time, this network was based on a shared love of Aquaman and Firestorm, and Slipknot was a Firestorm villain, and also the butt of many jokes on this show. However, uh, Slipknot was, here they said he's what, his power is to climb anything? I'm like, that's not his power, what? (laughs) Well, I mean, it could be. But he went out exactly like he should have. He went out exactly. like a chump and uh, on a Suicide Squad mission. So that was that was worth it. I'll give you his that. Head as- his head exploded and it was <laughs> glorious. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm not real down with Rick Flagg or uh, Katana either, actually. Katana, I think, really? had a lot of po- I think Katana had a lot of potential, but I don't think they really dived into it all that much. So I, I feel like she got a lot more shine in the extended cut. It was only one one little bit of her, but it was really good, and it okay. did a lot. Uh, but I, I liked her. I mean, she's not really important to the story. She's just kind of there. She's basically there to make sure Rick Flagg doesn't get decapitated by somebody. So I thought she did fine. She looked great. Like, really great. She did she look way good. better than the Arrow version. So yeah. that. Um, I liked Rick Flagg. I was actually glad that they didn't get Tom Hardy for that role because I want Tom Hardy to do something else. I'm not quite sure what and it wasn't Venom, but it's something. <laughs> but uh, but I thought the guy, uh, I can't think of his name right now, but I, can't I thought he did either. a really good job. He, he, he was believable to me as a military guy that was it- just having to deal with some crap he didn't want to have to deal with, but it's the job and he's going to get through it to the end one way or another. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm not there on that one. I, he, he seemed... You know, the, the whole stereotypical broken guy, you know, thing. Sure. But I, I didn't buy him as the military guy who wasn't going to ever give up kind of thing. Have you ever watched the honest trailers for Suicide Squad? No, I purposely try to avoid those for DC movies because I know they're just going to make me mad. Oh, uh, well, they, they 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 go after Katana pretty bad. And they don't even go after Katana. They go after the way that Rick Flagg keeps introducing her. And, like, making sure there's commentary about how badass she is, basically. It's like, okay, we get it. She's badass. Thanks, Rick. You know, that kind of thing, yeah, which that, is pretty that's funny. that's pretty valid. I can't really argue with that too much. 
All right, well, let's move on to the next big topic in Suicide Squad that everyone wants to talk about, which is Jared <laughs> Leto's we go. Joker. You knew this was coming, folks. All right, so here's a quote from Reddit. Uh, again, Wretched Hive of Scum and Villainy. Uh, the people say, Also, Jared Leto tried way too hard to make his Joker creepy slash cool. It was his take on a character that bombed for me. His Joker wasn't scary. He was just greasy. <laughs> greasy. Greasy and weird. So, uh, what do you think? think about this version of the Joker. All right. So I will admit when the first images came out, definitely was not digging the tattoos. Right. The damaged across the foreheads, just a hair on the nose. <laughs> uh, it took me a while to warm up to that. I'm glad they released that photo so early that I had months to get over it. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. The, gr- uh, the grill took a while to get used to. Yeah. Well, the grill actually, it bothered me for about a day. And then I was like, well, okay, Batman punched his teeth out and he got a grill. Joker smiles a big part of his look. I get it. It's modern. It's grungy. But it's like, I mean, you know, that's the kind of people Joker would probably hang out with. So I get it. I feel like Leto's Joker walked right off the pages of Brian Azzarello and Lee Bermejo's Joker graphic novel. I don't know if you've ever read that. I haven't. I think I've seen the cover. I bought it. I didn't, I wasn't over the moon in love with it because mm-hmm. it was trying to do like a Nolan-esque version of what Joker and Riddler and some other people would do be, which was interesting, but it was a, it was a very different take on the Joker and I didn't fall in love with it. I actually gave it to Adam Guerin, who's a listener to the, of the podcast. Awesome. Because he loved that book. But Leto's Joker is a modern gangster with a twisted, unnerving clown bent. It's the first one I've seen in live action and actually seemed crazy. Ledger's Joker was meticulous and definitely not crazy. He just wanted everyone to think he was crazy. Nicholson's was twisted and a bit impulsive, but fairly predictable. He told you his goals, and then he pursued them. Romero's was a fun-loving prankster, but otherwise kept his stuff together. With Leto's Joker, you never knew if he was going to kiss you or kill you. I'm not sure he even has an idea. Also, (laughs) we finally get to see Joker, Harley, and Batman all together in live action. Harley and Joker's relationship was a blast to watch. Can we appreciate how absolutely perfect Margot's Harley was? My goodness. (laughs) The added scenes in the extended cut were my favorite parts of the whole movie. The part where she's walking down the street psychoanalyzing everybody, that was a trip. And I bought all I, the I haven't the seen the, I haven't seen the extended version yet, so I need to oh check that out, it sounds God, like. Shag, it, don't just ignore that the theatrical cut even exists. Because <laughs> all the good stuff's in the extended cut. I'm not even kidding. There's a scene where she's walking down the street and she's psychoanalyzing everybody. Because, of course, she's a former psychiatrist. She's trained. Right. That's what she does. So she's going down the list and she goes to Katana and that's a fantastic Katana scene, which, again, I think it would help your issues with Katana if you saw that. It's not long, but I feel like it does a lot. It accomplishes a lot. But she's just messing with everybody and it's great. And uh, Captain Boomerang calls her out on it. And then there's another scene where she and the Joker stop on the freeway and she's like demanding he be in a relationship with her. And he's like, oh my God, this crazy chick. I, can, I don't even know what to do with you. He finally met somebody that's too crazy for him. Like he can't out crazy her and he doesn't know what to do. And you get to see a very rare glimpse of Joker almost flummoxed. And he's just trying to put on a strong face and he's trying to over exaggerate everything. So he looks like he's in control, but he's absolutely not in control. It's, it's great. Okay. So you don't subscribe to the whole thing that Leto was just too deeply invested in the character. I mean, all the stuff that he supposedly did off the set where he was ticking off all his co- uh, the co-workers and, you know, the other stars of the movie with his crazy antics and stuff. You don't think he was too far, huh? I mean, he probably was, but Ledger acted crazy when he was developing his character. Jack's crazy anyway. <laughs> you know what <laughs> like, whatever you got to do to get there, man, I don't care. Like, that has nothing to do with the final product to me. Like, I don't okay. care if he mailed somebody used condoms or 
dead rats. It really has no effect on my life. I thought the performance was fantastic. There's just so little of him that it's hard to... You know, everybody wants to rank who was the best Joker. Right. Is Leto like third or dead last? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I don't feel like we've seen enough of him to accurately gauge that, but I really want to see more because I loved what I saw. Well, it's interesting. You know, I I also struggled when the images came out. And also, I subscribed to that whole belief that we all got caught. Well, not maybe not everybody. At least me and my cycle of, of friends got caught up and was, you know, there was the Joker had what appeared to be two bullet wounds in his shoulders. And they seemed to match the shot wounds in, in the Jason Todd Robin oh, costume God. we all saw. Well, it was just a, a theory before the movie ever came out. It was one of those cosmic book news rumors, quote unquote, that they got off of a 4chan thread and went crazy with <laughs> and, and the idea well the idea was that 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 this wasn't the real joker that this was actually jason todd after he had been shot by the joker went nuts and became a new joker and that may have actually been easier for me to swallow than this version of the joker i don't know obviously you don't like that theory that would have been a really good way to make sure i never watch another one of these movies <laughs> okay so do you think we're gonna yeah, get i mean i can i can i can deal with a lot that would have been one step too far all right so do you want to see red hood in these movies at some point no i if if jason todd had stayed dead i would have been very happy i don't like his resurrection i don't like red hood i don't like anything involving him at all he's just showed up on titans on the dc universe app and he's great yeah because you hate him okay. instantly and want him to die it's perfect <laughs> I gotta tell you, and this has nothing to do with this, the Titan show, I was prepared to hate that show. I really was. It's so good. It's so good. Because the first trailer, and you and I did what we always do. The first trailer came out, and you and I go texting each other back and back and forth, and you're like, it's awesome. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know, bro. <laughs> and especially when they dropped the F-bomb and everything, I was oh, like, this is not beautiful. for me. And... <laughs> I will say still, this is not the Titan show I want. It's not the Titan show I was hoping for. But strangely, I have enjoyed every episode I've watched. Because it's good quality television. I'm compelled to watch more. I think it's head and shoulders above everything the CW has done, except maybe Black Lightning. Okay. I think Black Lightning's a fantastic show. I've seen one episode and I really dug it. I really, really dug it. Oh, you've got to finish season one, man. It's really good. Two things the Titan show had really going for it with me was one that where Raven starts off that that when she's living there with her her quote, her quote unquote mom before the the bad guys come in and take her away. That's the town I was born in. So that's kind of cool. I was like, oh, oh wow, I know that city. That's bizarre because it was it's, it's a small town in Michigan. And that's then how I felt when I first saw X Men in the movie theaters, the very first one, and they said Rogue was from Meridian, uh-huh. Mississippi, which is actually wrong because it's on the opposite side of the state as Natchez, where she's from in the books. But I was like, hey, that's an hour and a half from my house. I know where that. That is. That's really cool. That's always fun when you when you can identify with stuff like that. And then uh, the other thing I like about Titans is it's actually I really really like their interpretation of Starfire so far. I I'm not a huge oh, Starfire man. fan from the I don't like Starfire from the comics very much, and I, I haven't liked her in the cartoons very much. I've just never really warmed to Starfire. I mean, she's smoking hot, sure, in the comics, but totally. I've never really warmed to the character. But I really dig this version for some reason. I like her. I I didn't know what to think about the set photos. Yeah, but totally. As soon, as soon as I saw her in motion, and that actress just, I don't know what it is. She just got Starfire. She just, everything she does screams Starfire. It's okay. perfect. 
I love it. I absolutely love it. I'm very pleased. Again, like you, I saw the set photos too. I'm like, oh my God. I mean, we'll just say she looked like a, a street hooker. She looked like a, well, sh- I she mean, did. it is Starfire. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, and you know, so, the argument, the argument there, yeah, is that Starfire's costume was always designed to elicit a sexual response from men. Yep. Well, this costume yep. does too. <laughs> it definitely achieves that goal. Yep. All right. Let's, let's get back into Suicide Squad. Uh, this, this disaster movie that you're making sound not quite as bad. All right. Um, <laughs> So the last thing, and this is the big one for me, folks. This is the sticking point. So I actually have to agree with the people here. So the people from Up Rocks, that's U-P-R-O-X-X, they say David Ayer, the director, David Ayer is correct that the Joker, not Enchantress, should have been the big bad. Maybe not Jared Leto's edgelord Joker, but a less hot topic-y, that's a a phrase, folks, less hot topic-y version of the Clown Prince of Crime. So... What do you think about that? I agree with Ayer when he says that he should have gone with Joker as the villain. Yeah. Uh, But I wouldn't have changed Joker. I would have done the exact same Joker, maybe without some of the tattoos. But... I would have made him the main villain. That said, I really liked Enchantress. Maybe it's because she's a badass voodoo princess. (laughs) I don't know. But I was into it. I thought it was great. And it played into Diablo's whole thing. So, eh, I mean, I can go either way. I totally understand why people aren't exactly over the moon with Enchantress. But again... Much like everything else in the movie, outside of that main core of characters, I really just don't think anything else mattered. I think everything there was just to serve the plot in the sense that it gave them something to do where they'd have to work things out with each other and interact with each other. So So you're saying it's not plot driven, it's character driven. Yeah, totally, totally character driven. Okay. Yeah, because the the Enchantress stuff doesn't sit well with me. It's another one of these superhero movies with a giant blue beam into the sky. And, dude, they create their own problem. They get sent into the city with Enchantress, and she becomes the problem. So it's sort of like, you know, if the Suicide Squad never showed up, there wouldn't have been a big deal. Yeah, but I feel like that's the lesson that Waller had to learn. I feel like that's kind of the point of the story, what little story there is, is that Waller's arrogance created this team that created a bigger problem than the one she was trying to solve. Yeah. So when it back to Enchantress, what the hell was she trying to build at the end of that movie? What was her machine? What did uh, it do? I think they called it the MacGuffin, the, the MacGuffin machine. Oh, yeah, that's pretty accurate. I still have <laughs> no idea. There was no form or structure to it. It was just like metal and concrete spinning in a circle. Yeah. Like, yeah I mean, I'm sure that would kill me, but it's not exactly terrifying. <laughs> So, all right. So it sounds like you're a little bit on the side of the people that they got the villain wrong for the movie, but you still enjoy it for what it is. So, so what I'm walking away with what you're telling me is that for, to enjoy Suicide Squad, ignore the plot and just focus on the character development and strap in for a wild ride. Like you said, smoke and aces style and it's a blast yes. is what you're saying. Absolutely. Okay. I can try that. I can give Suicide Squad another try. I wasn't too excited about it, but then I remembered Margot Robbie's in it. So, yeah. All right. The next one. Now, this is the one that's pretty universally loved. So, we really only have one big criticism of it, but I'd love to hear what you think about this next movie. Folks, we're going to talk about Wonder Woman from 2017. There are people on, I would say, more people on the side of loving this movie to obsessiveness. And so, they may not even like the fact that it got some criticism, but it did. So, so here is the people from a website called Quora, Q-U-O-R-A, Quora, and it says, Wonder Woman
Woman is overrated because it fell apart in the third act. So, what they wrote here, and it's a little long, so stick with me, folks. They say, Ares' point in the movie was that humans are too dangerous to live. Diana was supposed to prove him wrong, but while fighting them, she did nothing but prove Ares' point. Steve Trevor states that before Wonder Woman goes to kill Ares, that, quote, killing one guy won't save the world. Well, she was too naive to understand this, kills the guy, and expects flowers and rainbows. But then it's revealed that Nigel Thornberry is Ares, and then she kills him, and everything's okay. Well, what? What was the message here? That one dude is causing everyone's problems? Then there's that line that Wonder Woman says at the end, love can save the world. Love didn't save the world. You just killed some dude and people stopped fighting. So that is what the people are saying, that Wonder Woman falls apart in the third act. What would you say to that for the defense? Well, I see more misinterpretation of what they watched in this okay. complaint. Uh, Ares' point was that humans were a pestilence and that they stole the world from the gods. It wasn't so much that, oh, they're so bad, they need to be killed. He was They were just a nuisance to him for the most part. And he was really jealous because all his brothers died, which which is pretty stupid because like, he killed them. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so what he means is, I want this place for myself and I want these dudes dead because they're in the way. Which also doesn't seem to be entirely true because he's the god of war. And if he kills everybody, there's no war. True. I'm thinking, you. I know this is crazy, but you can't really trust the words of the villain of the movie. That's just my take. Uh, okay. He's not wrong, however, about people stealing the world from the gods. And Diana didn't really prove his point wrong. But I don't think the movie was trying to convey that message to begin with. The lesson was that Diana's simple, naive, binary view of the world was infantile and that mankind is complex. It's both capable of unimaginable evil and miraculous good. It was more about Diana coming of age than mankind only being evil because Ares made them behave that way. He didn't have to. He just gave them a little push. Hmm. And All right. killing one guy didn't save the world, by the way. Killing Ares, stopping Dr. Poison, and taking out the guy who was about to lead the Germans to a victory, and then Steve blowing up the remaining gas canisters saved the world. Steve saved the world because he loved it, and he loved Diana. Diana saved the day because she learned to love mankind and love Steve. War didn't end after that either. World War II still happened shortly thereafter. So when you say the follow-up to love saves the world, you're saying it's because Steve loved so much that he was able to stop the bad guys and because she loved the world so much she didn't give up either so it's more of uh, maybe the right ri- line would be something like you love is so strong it'll make you fight to the you know, to, to save the world sort of and it's really more illustrative in what Steve did than what she did because she didn't sacrifice anything Steve had to stand there holding the girl of his dreams that he's head over heels madly in love with and tell her goodbye and then go climb onto this plane which he knows is suicide that he's got to blow up where his other option is to let it blow up and kill a bunch of people and maybe the war will still go on and maybe more people will die but he'll live and get to stay with his girl and fight the good fight he he, he loved people so much and whatever he considered the right thing so much that he sacrificed his life to end the war hmm. and i think i think that's the lesson that diana learned from him all right. Well, I, I got to say his sacrifice was big because I, I can't possibly imagine me being strong enough to walk away from Gal Gadot personally. Yeah, me either. That just makes it more impressive. <laughs> Captain Kirk is the best, man. <laughs> See, I can I can at least appreciate where someone's coming from when they can, when they criticize most of these movies. Mm-hmm. They all have a strong tone and polarizing aspects. That said, if someone says Wonder Woman was a bad movie, I just have to assume they're hating for the sake of being contrarian or they are mentally deranged. It's a good movie. I, it's a very good movie. 
movie. I've heard some complaints about the look of Ares, which, I mean, I get it, but that mustache was baller. you got to admit that, right? The CGI <laughs> nature of the third act, people always complain. I, this drives me crazy. You only hear this about DC movies. They say, oh, man, it was a CGI fest in the third act. Well, of course it was. It's building to a giant climactic battle. Infinity War was nothing but a purple CGI guy fighting people for what seemed like 25 consecutive hours. Nobody complains about that. But if it's in a DC movie, it's the worst decision ever. I just don't understand. All right, we'll see. All right, we're, we're going to do this then. Because I will I will take the side of saying, I don't know who their production company is. I don't know who their special effects company is. But the DC CGI creatures, and I shouldn't, I, f- I feel like we're stealing from future stuff here because there's some CGI comments coming up. Oh yeah, we're getting to that. <laughs> yeah, I guess, all right, we'll save it. We'll save it. But you brought up Thanos. Then I'll just say the, the Marvel side of it. Thanos, as, as fake as he was, I obviously, he didn't look fake. He looked like he was physically in the room with them. He See, looked like I just can't agree with that at all. He did not look Sorry. like Shrek. <laughs> he did not look like you know the. I the thought very he did. First... I thought he looked like purple Shrek. He did not like look every like the time very they first... showed his hands where he was holding something. It yeah. Just, it, oh my gosh! Just no. See, not I bought thing. every moment of him and the uh, the Avengers era Hulk. I buy both of them as being real living creatures there. Now you go back to like maybe the Ang Lee Hulk. Yeah, he looked like Shrek. But the, I the Marvel CGI is bully- like Rocket. You you can't deny that Rocket is a real yeah, living raccoon. Rocket looks pretty great. I'll give yeah. you that. Hulk, it depends on the shot. But then you but throw Rocket, in air. Rocket looks really good. But Rocket's in a movie where 90% of the movie's CGI. True, and it almost all works. But you, you throw in, though, Ares, though, in, in Wonder Woman, dude, and when the armor's slapping on him and stuff on Professor Lupin there, it's like, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. It doesn't look right. I can't. That's fair. I don't agree, but that's fair. Okay. The only the only CGI, and again, we'll get to this. The only CGI I had a problem with in the DC movies was Justice League. But again, okay. we'll get there. Well, you know what? We're going to get there right next. So let's do it. Let's talk about Justice League. From uh, Now, I will say, by the way, Wonder Woman, I love that movie. I We talked about finding our joy. I found my joy with that movie. I was so happy with that film. Yeah. Uh, how, I didn't even. How good was Gal Gadot? And no, nobody saw that coming. Nobody. nobody. Absolutely correct. Yeah. Well, once the trailer started coming out and once we saw BVS, we were all like, well, wait a minute. But, but yeah, even BBS, she, it was like, well, she didn't have to do a lot. So like maybe she got lucky, you know, right. It's yeah, always yeah. that in the back of your head. Like, I don't know. But she she pulled off confident woman and naive girl really well. Like she showed range in Wonder Woman. That was impressive. I bought everything she was selling. And of course, she's insanely gorgeous. Yeah. And then, yeah, the Amazons. Oh, my God. I could spend a whole movie on Themyscira with them. They are killer. Right. Sometimes literally. <laughs> She, like, when you watch certain movies, the lead actor, sometimes they have it, sometimes they don't. And it's just simply the ability to lead the film, to make you invested in the character. And she is a leading lady, without a doubt. She is that good. She controlled the screen. Oh, and Etta Candy doesn't get enough credit. She was hilarious in that Oh, movie. she was very funny. She was very funny. She was good. I yep. liked the, the little cast-off group of misfit toys they had with them. <laughs> I, I, I do want to get this in. The thing about Wonder Woman that impressed me more than anything else, more than Gal's performance, more than everything, direction, it was the fact that, and I, did, I didn't know how this was going to go. I was a little trepidatious about this. But the fact that it built Diana and women in general, it built them up without tearing Steve and men in general down. Mm. Steve and Diana both respected each other. They brought different skills to the table. They each had their own jobs. Diana could have done anything, of course. But they both felt 
found their role. Like nobody was in control of the other. Nobody, you know, like Steve was the one that knew more about the world, but something, even though she was naive, like Diana had heart and she had drive that Steve just couldn't even comprehend at some points. Like they needed each other and there was balance and it was beautiful. Well, in those scenes where he was, you know, trying to teach her about the world, she was almost like a, like a racehorse. Like he, and he was barely holding on. Like, you know, he was, yes, he knew he had the knowledge or how, how to, how you navigate the world, but she was just going, you know, he, he yeah. was barely holding on being able to hold her back. So, or keep her, and I'm not using the right words. You, you summarized it much better than I did. So yeah, you're right. There was a sense of equality there, which was really well done. We're very well balanced. So uh, let's talk about Justice League 2017. All right. We'd all been waiting for this. We've been waiting for this our whole lives. A big theatrical Justice League movie. A lot of people love it. A lot of people don't like it. I'll show my hand early and tell you guys at home. I really like this movie. I really, really like this movie. In fact, uh, I've shown it. To, I bought it on uh, digital and showed it to my kids. I was so excited. And then my wife watched it. I, I dig this thing. All right. So let's hear what the people have to say. From Reddit.com, that wretched hive of scum and villainy, the overall theme there was that the movie was rushed. It was rushed to the team up is what they're saying. So the main problem with the DC films is that they try to rush to a team up movie with out having solo movies before that. The DC films had other problems, but the bigger problem is that movies like Suicide Squad and Justice League shouldn't have even come out yet. So essentially what they're saying is that the they're, they're implying that DC should have followed the Marvel model, where you introduce all the characters and then do the team-up movie. So, the people have spoken. What's the defense say? I would say they didn't rush to the team-up. There's more than one way to do this. So, just because Marvel did it and did it wonderfully and successfully does not mean that's the only way you can do this. So, there were four DC films before Justice League. Mm-hmm. Four. I think there were five before the Avengers. So that's pretty comparable if you want to talk about laying foundations or whatever. But I think the issue a lot of people have and the disconnect comes is that they don't understand that Snyder's approach to this was to build a world, not individual franchises that fit together like a puzzle later. It was the exact opposite of what Marvel was doing. So the goal was to create a DC world in which these characters existed. Within that world, they would interact. Sometimes they would have a solo adventure. As for setting up characters, Superman got a solo film. Diana got a solo film. Batman essentially had a solo film in BVS as, well, let's face it, everybody alive knows all about all there is to know about Batman at this point. All the audience right. really needed was a recontextualization of him. Oh, this is an older Batman. He's had a Robin die. He's pissed and he's lost his way. That left Flash, Cyborg, and Aquaman to be introduced. And I think Justice League did a pretty good job of explaining who Flash and Cyborg were as well as what their motivations were. Aquaman got just enough, I think. By their nature, the audience doesn't need a whole lot of explanation to run with there. I mean, dude has water-based powers. Other dude is fast. Other other dude is a cyborg. I certainly don't think a lack of solo films for Flash, Aquaman, and Cyborg had too much to do with how JL turned out. Now, I do think the film itself was rushed to the theater Mm-hmm. The form that we got it in, but I'll get into that. In. Yeah, that's one of our topics to discuss. That's true. Okay. I don't know how I feel about the development of the various characters. I mean, Cyborg wouldn't have benefited from a film on his own, I think, beforehand. Flash, you know, there was already a successful TV series on, what, his third or fourth season by that point. So, you know, you're not going to do a Flash movie at that right out of the gate. Yeah, maybe there's a lot to be said for this was the formula. You introduce Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, and then you come to the Justice League. Maybe it is true. <laughs> I mean, if you look at it on paper, it makes sense. You take your Trinity, who are all big guns. 
Yep. Like those are your guys that are guaranteed to make you money. And then you bring in your second level characters who have a lot to bring to the table. You put it, you, you just sprinkle them in there. You know, you just sprinkle them in there a little bit. Let them run around, literally in Flash's case. <laughs> people get intrigued by them and then you go, oh, now we're going to give you their story. So in theory, it worked. It would have worked, but ultimately it didn't. But there's a lot of reasons for that we'll get into later. Well, you know what? Let's talk about this for a second because we, we don't have, I don't have this in the list. But this is one of the things that bugged me early on was Flash. You know, the whole idea that they've got Flash, again, four years on TV at that point, Barry Allen, Grant Gustin, very well established. And they go a completely different route with another Flash. It's a Barry Allen. Obviously, we know the multiverse works. It's fine to have a different version. But should they have included Flash in Justice League? Should they have left him out? Do you mean Flash in general or Grant Gustin's Flash? Well, I I don't think they could have put Grant Gustin's Flash in here. As much as I would have loved that, I think that the TV universe... I that idea. Yeah, I think the TV universe and the film universe is just too different. But yeah. should they have just left Flash out? Or maybe should they have done Wally West instead? What do you? Any thoughts uh, on that? See, I think if you're going to do Wally, then Barry had to have existed first. I, I think it's it's just, it's unfair to the fans if you skip a generation, so to speak. Like, I don't like that at all. Well, they could have um, done Jay then. They could have done Jay, but Jay doesn't really play in a modern context unless he's an anachronism. So that would have yeah. been really awkward. Like, True. I mean, would you have said that he's just he just ran to the future and that's why he's helping out. I, I, it's just too awkward. I think, yeah. I think Barry was the way to go. I think he was handled really well. As we'll get into in a minute, Like I feel like this is an earlier Barry than we're used to and that's why there were a lot of different quirks he's got that we, we weren't quite sure of. Yeah. But we're getting there. We're getting there. Okay. Well, let's talk about the characters then. That'll give us a chance to dive into this a little more. So, yeah. according to Forbes... Forbes.com. Forbes says they were boring characters. So he says, uh, Forbes here says, it's not just Zack Snyder's fascination with dark and brooding. It's his inability to draw personable, relatable characters. Snyder's approach lacks even the semblance of charisma. Justice League is a movie with almost none of the charm of, say, Wonder Woman or Thor Ragnarok. And that's a huge failing since comic book movies are supposed to make larger-than-life characters even more vibrant on the big screen. Snyder manages to do just the opposite. Hmm. Okay. So the uh, the people have said that the characters are boring in this movie. Defense. How would you respond? I think that if he had said this about Man of Steel or even BVS to an extent, he might have had some kind of argument. But the fact okay. that he's saying this about Justice League, I think, is absolutely insane. Because I think that the only part of Justice League that hit on all cylinders was characterization. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, aside from Whedon making Batman look like a joke in a couple shots, I think the characters were well defined and bounced off each other pretty nicely. Barry was a younger, less sure of himself version of what we're used to, but he was adorable. Cyborg was a guy you just felt for, man. He had his whole life ripped away. He had a cold, disappointed relationship with his dad, and he's trying to find purpose in the world as well as his role on the team. And then Aquaman's got drama back home that he's trying to avoid, so he's falling in with these superpowered lunatics on a suicide mission. Dude just wants to surf and drink beer, but he's stuck <laughs> orders from a dude in a bat suit. Like, come on, man. So, like, I feel if Justice League nailed anything at all, it was character. Barry was hull hilarious the part where aquaman's sitting on top of the lasso of truth yes going on and oversharing <laughs> that is tremendous like are you kidding me there's no charisma in that movie get out of here i agree completely i love the characters you know flash and cyborg were the two characters going into it that i didn't really care for flash especially because the grand gustin thing and everything we talked about a minute ago sure. but ultimately ezra miller's portrayal i remember after i saw the movie the way i described it was he was pretty funny and not as annoying as i thought he would be you know <laughs> it was what i said what a, what a compliment <laughs> well, it, it, it really 
really was, considering how much I was prepared to dislike his character. Now, after watching it a second time, I've actually warmed to the Flash quite a bit. Yeah, when he goes on about brunch, that's just that's the most adorable thing. <laughs> like, what even is brunch? I feel you, man. <laughs> Cyborg was the shocker to me, because I was prepared to not even dislike Cyborg. I was just prepared to be bored by Cyborg, because Cyborg isn't usually a kind of... And for some reason, I don't, I don't connect a lot with uh, the Wolfman Perez Titans, at least the original characters from that, like Raven and Cyborg and Starfire. And uh, those, I don't usually connect really well with those characters. So I wasn't prepared to engage with that, but I thought the, the actor, and this is down to the actor. uh, He really engaged me. Yeah. I felt a connection with that character and I felt genuinely sorry for what he was going through and how, and it was impressed by how he was persevering and handling it and dealing and rising to the challenge. So I really liked Cyborg quite a bit. So yeah, I would, I would agree. They're not, boring characters and Aquaman yeah he's hysterical I was say, Aquaman probably could have used more development but by that point I think everyone in the audience knew an Aquaman movie was coming so I was like okay yeah well, we're gonna find that out soon there are things about this movie I'm a big Zack Snyder fan that's no secret I love his tone I love what he does so some of the goofier stuff you would probably expect in a Snyder movie to turn me off but the part at the end when Cyborg and Superman are both like knocked out by the separation of the mother boxes yeah and Superman's like I take it back I wish I was dead right it's hilarious I was all about that. That was fantastic. And I think Snyder shot that because I don't think they CGI'd out a mustache in that scene. Oh, see, I was going to say. didn't do it. I know we're going to have a discussion about Whedon versus Snyder, and that sounds like a Whedon joke to me. It does, but it it couldn't be if he doesn't have a CGI'd out mustache in that scene, right? Like, it had to have been there. Maybe they just did a good job with it. And Snyder did tell us, and they, that set report everybody went to, they were adding humor. They The whole time, the whole point of Justice League was it was going to be lighter, it was going to have more jokes. And a lot of those jokes were in the trailers before Snyder left. So, I mean, it was there. Yeah. Well, m- most of what we're going to go through is people kvetching. So I will tell you some of the things that I love about the movie was it was that lighter tone. And that's what connected with me. Some of the humor, some of the, now some of the humor you didn't, you may not have liked because you felt like it was, oh, it was, I and mean, we'll get to all that again, the division of the directors. But I loved all the humor in it. The, the ending, we finally saw Superman. You know, that was Superman. The smiles. That's what I was getting at the, earlier. Yeah. It, it, and it meant so much more because you saw how he got there. Yeah. He yeah. didn't just come out of the gate, oh, I'm Superman, everything's great, we're done here. Like, I'm going to punch some bad guys and have a movie. Like, you actually saw him from birth to now. And you saw why he's Superman. You know why he doesn't kill people. You know why he cares about Earth and why he cares about people. You know why he loves Lois. It it all is there. And it took three movies of him to get you there. It should have been four, but that's I'll get to that later. <laughs> you know, you you sold that to me back when this movie came out and we were talking about it. And I was saying, I wish this is the Superman we'd gotten all along. And that was the point you made, you made was, no, this is better because he had to earn it. And it was this more than any other Superman. This Superman was earned. And that's interesting. I, again, I don't know that I agree with you as far as how what I, I had to suffer through for three films to get there. But, <laughs> suffer, listen to you. <laughs> but it was earned, definitely earned by the end there. All right. Let's get into the next character comment here. This one I simply call Aqua Bro is what this comment is. Jason Momoa would be a... Oh, I'm sorry. This comes from Reddit.com. The Wretched Hive is coming villainy. They write, Jason Momoa would be a fantastic Lobo. His whole dude bro personality would work great for that. But it just doesn't work for a wise, noble, kingly Arthur Curry who has to harbor the weight and responsibility of two worlds on his shoulders. He's a pretty serious and stern person with some humorous charm. But Momoa doesn't play him like that at all. 
Ball. Hmm. All right. You and I have had many conversations about the Aqua Bro version of Aquaman, and the people here aren't don't sound like they're very happy about it. What do you think? Uh, well, Momoa doesn't play him like that because Arthur isn't there yet. He's not the noble, stern king of Atlantis. He's the disillusioned, possibly pissed-off surfer dude who feels abandoned by his mother and probably lied to by his father. For me... I'm all about some Aqua Bro. That <laughs> stuff ruled. When he's on top of the Batmobile and he's like surfing on the hood and screaming, yeah! When he's literally surfing a parademon down a building. Right. When Cyborg catches him and they're flying through the air and he screams, my man! Dude, I could watch that Aquaman all day long. <laughs> all day. Everything you just quoted is what I hate about this version of Aquaman, which is interesting <laughs> because, course. but but here's the thing, all of that was in the trailer. My man, the surfing, yeah, yeah all of that was in the trailer. And, and believe me, when we were at Heroes Con last year, we had a blast making fun of it. Luke Dobb even made up a catchphrase for Aquaman going, I'm going deep, you know, it's all this stuff. And we, it, I didn't like that. But that was the trailer. And once you get past the trailer, you, you remove those Aqua Bro moments in the trailer. Everything else with Aquaman's great. That's the thing. Every other scene with Aquaman. Now, is he, you know, the the SAG version of Aquaman, meaning, uh, you know, Steve Skates, uh, Jim Aparo, and Dick Giordano? Is it that version of Aquaman? No. No, he's not. Is he even the Peter David version of Aquaman? Not exactly. No, he is more of a, a bro. But wouldn't Aquaman be a bro? I mean, he grew up surfing on the beach, hanging out by a lighthouse. Like, I figure he'd be a bro. And Smallville, which, God, I hate Smallville, but Smallville kind of <laughs> gave us that a little bit. And that Hawk, oh, yeah. show definitely was trying to give us Aqua Bro at first, before he discovers who he is. So, well, I mean... I, I, oh, I want to see, all right, I would say the Mercy Reef version was actually closer to Arthur Curry. Because yeah. it, he felt like an Arthur Curry. He wasn't all Aqua Bro. He was, you know, he was kind of a, a lost soul. He hadn't figured out his way in life at that point. Yeah. But he, there was no broness in that he version. Was, well, I don't know. I mean, he had the douche hair and he walked around with his shirt off, you know, sure. trying to like hit on the girls. Like, it's, I don't know. It's pretty bro y to me. <laughs> yeah, I, I could see l- him in a frat with like a seashell necklace listening to some, I don't know, Everclear or something. <laughs> uh, maybe, 90. maybe. But that's just a life that you wish you had living down there in the, wherever island he was on. Uh, so. Sort of, yeah, sort of, no. <laughs> but so you, t- you look at Momoa and you look at all the scenes in Justice League besides those, and he does do a really good job. I like him in the role. And of course, we extrapolate this to look at the new trailer of Aquaman. And he looks like he is the Aquaman we need in order to make the public, the general public, fall in love with Aquaman. Yep. So, I can get behind the Aqua Bro, but I don't think they're necessarily, I don't think the people are necessarily wrong that this is not the version of Aquaman, even in the most recent Jeff Johns version of, like, New 52. Oh, yeah, it's very different than that, as far as his personality is shown. Now, yeah. I would like I would like to remind the people at home that the defense has just perjured himself because I have texts to prove it. Like two years ago, where you were saying that you totally saw this version of Aquaman as the Jeff Johns version. So uh, I'm just saying, don't make me even pander those into evidence. Part, parts of it, yeah, but I oh, also backpedal, said, backpedal. I also said if you check those text messages, personality wise, he's straight out of Brave and Bold. Okay, we agreed with that too. Okay, I agree yeah. with that because I probably- I still maintain if I don't hear an outrage in that solo film I'm going to be furious we got a booyah from Cyborg so we should get an outrage oh outrageous, yes so. we did oh lord yes we did and it was beautiful and in your defense you were probably drunken when you were texting me because it was 2 o'clock in the afternoon so um, I don't drink 
<laughs> the next, you're in a rock band. Anyway, the next comment, I'm you're in three rock, rock hey, bands. Gene Simmons doesn't drink. That's true. Yeah, well, except for blood. He drinks blood. But, well, that's different. Uh, I didn't say I don't drink blood. The next Justice League comment comes from Reddit as well, again. And this one is about the CGI. We've hinted at it, so here we go. The very first scene of the movie was a clear indication that CGI was going to be an issue. The scene was done terribly. Seriously, how hard is it to cover and remove a mustache? And then it goes on to say, the main villain of the movie, Steppenwolf, with terrible CGI, was a massive thing. It totally kills the main big moments of the movie. It can easily take the audience away from the tension that they are trying to build. The people have spoken. I don't personally, don't necessarily agree with the Superman mustache thing. I didn't really see it, I guess. Maybe everyone else did and I didn't. But the Steppenwolf thing does bother me. So, what is the defense have to say about that? Uh, the mustache was absolutely unbearable. Really? Unbearable. I've watched from it twice now first, and I just... It, from the very first clip of the movie where it's the cell phone video of the kids. Like, will you be on our podcast? Right, right. Oh my God. And then the rest of the movie, you could, you could just so easily tell where it was erased and where it wasn't and it drove me insane it didn't help that i watched it in imax <laughs> like a 20 foot erased mustache but this is what happens when 20 people fight for control of a movie and they try to rush it to theaters in spite of a family tragedy a rival studio shooting schedule conflicting with reshoots and studio mandates to rethink the whole thing from scratch now i don't think the cgi was as bad as most think but it sure as hell ain't great uh I don't know if you remember the clip where Steppenwolf catches and redirects the missile when they're underground, but that looked like PlayStation 2 graphics. Not even (laughs) PS3, not PS4, PlayStation 2. And what makes this even worse is that Warner Brothers apparently changed the entire design of Steppenwolf at some point during the filming process because... All of the character designs that have come out for Justice League look like the version of Steppenwolf we saw at the end of BVS that was talking hmm. to Luther. That looks way more badass anyway. But I don't know. Like, it's so weird. Some shots, he looks really good. The close-up where he lands on Themyscira. Okay. You see the different colors reflecting off of the metal. And then at the very end when his helmet falls off, like, that looks like it's in the shot till it bounces or whatever. But... Some of the shots were really, really bad. Like, really bad. Yeah. And I I don't... I was like, you guys could have postponed this. Like, why did you just rush this to the theater so quick? But I guess it had to happen before Aquaman came out. But, I mean, hell, it could have come out this past summer. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) they have options. Well, you know the story goes. Supposedly, they did it for the WB execs to give their bonuses. But that could just be urban legend. Who knows? Well, that's allegedly why they cut it to two hours. But I'm getting to that in the next Okay, We're going to go over Well, so it sounds like that allegation is sustained. The CGI was garbage. We all agree on that. Okay, pretty pretty bad. The The final comment for Justice League is the reshoots. Joss Whedon versus Zack Snyder. So this one comes from ScreenRant.com. Says, of course. There's a big villain in the Justice League, and it isn't Steppenwolf. It's the reshoots. The exact nature of the DC film's infamous reshoots has been debated endlessly over the past year. Was Joss Whedon executing a massive course correction or simply helping out Zack Snyder? Whatever was true, most had assumed we'd never truly know. However, nobody quite expected the reshoots to be quite so rampant or obvious in the movie itself. Justice League is a mishmash of tone, narrative and character with glaring leaps in feel and some downright shocking CGI. 
All right, now the CGI issue has already been addressed. I don't know that we need to touch on that one again. But the rest of the points there. Uh, for the defense, how would you respond? Well, I still don't think the CGI was as bad as other people, but it was pretty rough. That's yeah. it. Zack Snyder got screwed point blank. First, Justice League was going to be two films bridged by a cliffhanger. Then BVS came out. And even though it was making buku money, everybody allegedly hated it. So Warner Brothers stepped in and said, nope, you got to condense this into one film. So Zack Snyder said, fine, we'll condense it into one film. We'll save Darkseid for later. It's all good. Well, then they hated his assembly cut and scheduled reshoots. What can you do, right? Then he experienced an awful tragedy when his daughter passed away. And we don't have to get into the details of that because, frankly, they're just too depressing. Agreed. Some people say that he walked away after that to be with his family and grieve, which sounds pretty likely. Some also claim that he was fired. Now, if that's not true and they're reporting that, they are the worst human beings on the earth. But I can mm. kind of see it being a little bit of both, to be honest. Okay. I could see a little truth in both of those because Warner Brothers was clearly not happy after BVS. Uh, either way, Joss Whedon came in to finish the film. And well, that still wasn't enough for Warner Brothers, apparently, as they didn't let Whedon make the film his way either. They got yet another party to edit the film and mandated it be cut down to two hours so it could get more showings per day. Because they figured, well, if, if it's shown on more screens more times a day, then we'll make more money than we would make if we just put this out two and a half hours and everybody hated it. So apparently uh. Warner Brothers gave up on this film before it ever even hit theaters. Hmm. But, you know, it, it, I know this is crazy, but maybe if you make a good film and let it breathe you'd make more money and it wouldn't matter how many times it showed per day but whatever they were clearly not looking for legs they were looking to make a bunch of money on the front end so then they took his composer away breaking one of the biggest links connecting the films together now in a vacuum i like danny elfman's score for this movie yeah but when i watch it as a sequel to the previous movies it makes me violently angry mm. All those great Hans Zimmer pieces for Superman are just gone. You get a just a hair of one when they resurrect him. But other than that, it's just it just does not connect at all to anything that came before. It's just too hard of a left turn. Like I understand we want to be like, oh, we're DC and we're in a new direction and we like fun and rainbows now. But it's like, guys, you gotta you gotta get us there. You can't just be like things fixed. Here's a puppy. You know, it just doesn't freaking work that way. Um, I like that puppy. I'm sure. It's also important to note that the AT&T merger was up in the air during all this. So mm -hmm. these high up executives don't know if they're going to have a job because when AT&T buys Warner Brothers, they don't know if they're going to look at the bad returns from BBS and whatever Justice League turn out to be and be like, all right, well, we're cutting heads, you know, so let's cut it down to two hours and get as much money as we can, like you said, so we can make our bonuses by the end of the year in case that we don't have a job here anymore. Because Sujihara, who started out being a creator friendly guy who went to bat for DC and went to bat for Zack Snyder, and I truly believe did everything he could up to a certain point to make sure that Snyder's movies got made the way Snyder wanted them but he still got to answer to the money guys and the money guys who of course don't know anything about film they're the ones making the decisions and anytime the money guys get a little bit of nervous they start making big changes True. I mean look at Disney right now with Star Wars <laughs> we're mm -hmm. not getting those those extra side films anymore because they're like well Solo didn't make seven billion dollars better stop them yeah so I mean <laughs> it's it's just frustrating so once once again, the suits jack with a DC movie. Lather, rinse, repeat. 
a question for you, not in the script or anything, but so if Schneider had been able to finish the film, if, you know, excusing the personal trauma, excusing the execs getting in there and fiddling with it, how different do you think the movie would have been? I think it would have been significantly different. There are scenes where the characters, you know, they're in front of green screen, green screen for most of this. But you can go back and look at the trailer. There's a there's a shot where Wonder Woman and Aquaman, for instance, are standing in that kind of warehouse place and they're looking at Steppenwolf in the final battle. Mm-hmm. Well, the the building they're in is a completely different set in the trailer. Completely different. Hmm. Colors are all different. The, the setting is different. So that may have happened in a different place. I know that... And, and this is this. Oh my God! The more I talk about what this movie would have been, the more it just makes me depressed. But the whole point of the mother boxes having to come together mm-hmm. was because when you put all three together, it resurrects Hegra. No way. Well, that's why it's called a mother box. That's why he keeps calling it mother. Oh. He's trying to bring Hegra back. That's his whole thing. That's his whole goal. For those of you at home who don't know Hegra, is that's Darkseid's mom. Right. So yeah. there's a scene. Who he, who he assassinated, by the way. He had assassin- He had Steppenwolf assassinator. Of course. He, he, Steppenwolf has to do a lot of things he doesn't want to do. <laughs> <laughs> there's a theme. <laughs> but but uh, when Cyborg grabs the three mother boxes and he's trying to figure out how to separate them. And then in the movie, you see Steppenwolf say, now do you see? Well, they cut a whole scene where you get to see Batman's nightmare come back from BVS and happen. And you understand more context about that. And you see Dark Side, and you see Boom Tubes, and you see them basically terraforming Earth to create Apocalypse on Earth. And all these things, all that was cut, completely cut out. None of it makes any sense. At one point, you hear Steppenwolf say, for Dark Side, nobody but us knows what the hell that means. Right. All that context had been cut. And at the point where you see him being pulled up into the Boom Tube by the Parademons, you're supposed to see St- Dark Side kill him, but you don't. Hmm. So, I mean, and that's just, dude, that's the tip of the iceberg. A lot of scenes made it uh, previs scenes that hadn't had the CGI added, like the scene with Iris in it, uh, a lot of cyborg stuff. A lot of that made it online the week after the movie came out and then was (laughs) immediately yanked by Warner Brothers. Interesting. I mean, it was a it was a totally different movie. I mean, a lot of it was still there, but that opening shot with uh, Batman on the roof chasing the parademon down. That was Joss Whedon. He added that. And I've got to give him credit. I'm not a big Joss Whedon fan. Mm-hmm. That looked like Batman the Animated Series in live action. I was that was really good. About that. Yeah. that was incredible. I don't know why when a parademon explodes, you see three mother boxes. That makes <laughs> no sense to me. I, what the hell? Why? Because uh, of plot. <laughs> I, I guess. <laughs> and then, you know, Whedon's god awful god-awful scene where you see a woman on the news talking about how her husband was anal probed by those aliens and then it pans down to a conversation where martha kent tells lois lane that clark told her that lois was the thirstiest woman he'd ever met in his life because get it get it kids kids say thirsty if a girl wants sex really bad (laughs) get it oh man joss whedon's so hip no that was terrible and shameful and should not be in that movie uh, I would agree with you now that I understand the scene. Unfortunately, I'm so unhip. I had to have my friend Daniel explain to me via text what thirsty meant. I didn't get the joke. So that was a little embarrassing for me. Well, it was a terrible joke and you should have been glad you didn't get it. I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> uh, well, I love the movie. I love the final product. It gave me a lot of hope. In some ways, I'm kind of glad they cut the dark side stuff because... You know, Marvel has done such an exceptional job with Thanos, right? And all Thanos is, is a poor man's dark side. So, 
if you compare the two, though, the fact that they've done Thanos so well, Darkseid is just going to be compared as a second rate, no matter how good they make it. I would argue that Thanos and Infinity War was a poor man's Thanos, but that's for another day. Okay, well, maybe so. But either way, I think that it would be it would har- it would be hard to follow up the success of Thanos with a dark side. So going the route, at least with the way Justice League looked like it was going to end, with going the route of an Injustice League, like I was punching the air oh, thinking that, about that. That's my it's favorite like, post-credit scene of oh, all time. It's so good because it's like, okay, you know what? No one else has done that. You know, Marvel's done all kinds of stuff with villains and stuff like that. No one has put together a you know a dark mirror version of the team meaning like superman's lex luthor and you know i don't know Bat- batman's dark side deathstroke which really doesn't fit that's a titans villain but you know what i'm saying <laughs> just, you know, just go with it man <laughs> right having a team of supervillains come together they build up and then have them fight the justice league would have been brilliant so and it may still happen at some point i mean dc may start focusing on their villains they're making a joker movie well, let's talk. Like, you know what? Let's talk about that because we're saving BVS for the end. So let's talk about the future here, okay? So on the horizon, we know is an Aquaman movie, a Shazam movie, which may or may not be part of the DC universe. I don't oh, know. It is. It is. It is. Okay. It absolutely is. Yeah. Okay. Wonder Woman, nineteen eighty four. Um, so we know those are coming. Definitely, we know there's a Joker movie coming. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pose a question to you here. This is another one from the internet, from the voices of the world, the 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 faceless internet, and then we'll get into you know kind of. How where you think the future's going, and then, folks, it's going to be time for the big throwdown with Batman v Superman. So, this one, oh, you know, I mistakenly did not credit this one. Let's just assume it comes from Reddit. Um, <laughs> probably is, did. Probably did. Is there hope for the DC films to reach the quality and success of the Marvel Cinematic Universe? And then they go on to say, the current DC films, probably not, outside of the widely acclaimed 1-2 of Aquaman and Shazam, there's no real chance of the universe finding its way back to the public. Wonder Woman 2 may be successful, but it won't be enough to get people in theaters for the others. So, it's a good question. It's a fair question. I mean, Justice League, one thing we did not acknowledge when we talked about a moment ago was it didn't make the bank that BVS did. It didn't make the bank that anyone was hoping for. So, what about the future of DC? Can they, according to this question, reach the success and quality of Marvel? I think they have a steep hill to climb, but I definitely think it's possible. And I I truly believe this. This isn't just fanboy talking. I think Aquaman is going to blow people away when it comes out Mm -hmm. next month. Uh, The early buzz on it is crazy good. But we've heard that before. However, every single piece of footage I've seen from that looks absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Just great. And James Wan, unlike Snyder, was able to convince Warner Brothers to let him do his own thing uninhibited. He gets to make his movie, just like Patty Jenkins was. Because there was a big kerfluffle a while back where there was a rumor that James Wan was walking away. And this was about the same time they were negotiating with Matt Reeves about the upcoming Batman movie. Whenever hmm. that's going to happen. And the story was that James Wan wasn't leaving if he got to make his own movie. Hmm. Now, that's not to say he didn't want to be constrained by what Zack was doing. He didn't want what Warner Brothers did to Zack to happen to him. Sure. And by all accounts... He's been able to make his movie. Patty made hers. Guess how that turned out? (laughs) You know, and David Sandberg is not only being able to make his own movie, but he is a fiery bastard on Twitter. Every time, every time a rumor about his movie comes out about Shazam that is not true, he immediately strikes it down (laughs) with righteous fury and anger. And it's beautiful to watch. He just does not care. (laughs) 
<laughs> he'll be like, that's a lie. You're an idiot. Stop talking. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> it is amazing. And now James Wan's jumped onto that bandwagon. Like, when people post fake news, he just tears them up. And he's like, yeah, that's not my movie. Stop. It's great. All right. Yeah. So, I've got hope. The Shazam movie was not the Shazam movie I was hoping for. But really? once I... Oh, not at all. When I, I love Zachary Levi. Chuck is one of my favorite shows. Yeah. I, I love it. I love Zachary Levi on the show. I think he's hysterical. I follow his career and different stuff as well. And when I heard him cast to Shazam and I saw the early set photos of him in the costume, which mm-hmm. I felt like just looked like a you know an inflatable suit, I was like, what? <laughs> no, this yeah, is Yeah, but he awful. got ripped, man. He's big. Well, some of, I still say some of it's the costume, but he definitely well, got I'm ripped. I'm sure it is, yeah. but he got big. But, well, some of Affleck was the costume, but I that's mean, true. Bat, Batflick was rocking some guns yeah so so when the trailer comes out i was like prepared to hate it and i was like oh oh now i get this movie this looks Mm -hmm. really damn fun it looks really fun and i'll never say this about anything else but i was kind of scared they were going to go too far in the jeff johns direction with him like the new 52 well because they might still we don't know well there's there's aspects of it clearly in there but man that billy batson's a dick in that book I right, did not exactly. want that in this movie. <laughs> I, I know. Like, I was like, he's a bit rough, Jeff. Like, pump the brakes, man. <laughs> <laughs> pump the hay brakes, Thanos. Are yeah. we gonna get? Um, are, are we gonna get all like seven of the kids with the powers and all that stuff too? Yes. Or? Yeah, from really? the orphanage or whatever, or the the people that adopt them. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, they're going all out, man. Like, <laughs> I hope it works. A little nervous. It looks like they're taking the structure of the Jeff Johns run, but they're taking the tone of the old school books. Okay. And I'm all for that. Like, it needs to be a fun kids movie. It needs to feel like Disney made it, but Disney didn't make it. I mean, that's just... That's just how it needs to be. So Wonder Woman 1984, you know, that's a big thing. They, there's, they got huge, huge shoes they got to fill. I mean, it's their own shoes. They're walking back in them yeah. again. I think they can pull it off. They just moved it back, but that's a good Uh-oh. thing because, okay. well, now it's now it's in prime like June. Oh, July. okay. Like, yeah, it was going to come out around Thanksgiving or so. Well, Thanksgiving's a pretty good slide. December, I can't remember. Yeah, but it's not the summer. I mean, this this movie could be huge like the first one was. And uh, I love the fact that it's in the 80s. I have no idea why Steve Trevor is back, but they're not talking about why that is. And they shouldn't. I'm wondering if she just sees him, you know, like if he's not really there or something. But I don't know. It's Wonder Woman. Who knows? It could be anything. I was really surprised about the casting of Cheetah. Right. That was that was out of left field. I'm not the biggest Kristen Wiig fan, but I trust Patty Jenkins. It's like yeah. I used to say in the Chris Nolan days. I trust Nolan. He's got to see something here. So I think Patty's got to see something in that. So I'm all in, man. Well, who cast Gal Gadot? Was it Snyder? Zack Snyder cast everybody. In fact, he's an executive producer and co-writer of Wonder Woman. So the next time hmm. somebody says, oh, I like the DC movies, but I hate Zack Snyder. It's like, well, you must not like Wonder Woman then because it wouldn't exist without him. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Man deserves more credit. <laughs> so that's the future of the DC movies. It sounds like you feel like they're in good hands and they could course correct. I'll, I'll tell you what I think would be a good move because I don't I don't think we're going to see a Justice League 2, uh, which is a shame. I, it's it's a long shot. I yeah. I think I think we're going to get Green Lantern core before that with Jeff Johns completely controlling all the creative aspects of that, which is the yeah. best news ever. 
The Birds of Prey movie looks like it's coming pretty quickly. The Batman's coming pretty quickly. Birds of Prey is going to be rated R, though. I don't know how I feel about that, or at least yeah. that's what they're aiming for. Uh, but Walt, Walter Hamada is in charge of DC Films now, and he used to be with New Line, and he worked with James Wan on all the Conjuring movies and all their stuff. His big thing is he, he made his name by taking tiny budgets and making a lot of money off of tiny budgets. Hmm. and letting directors just go wild but you got to stay within a small budget and i think if dc starts heading in that direction with certain properties because i mean if you're doing a movie that takes place in gotham there's no reason it should cost 250 million dollars like that's just not necessary you can make an 80 million dollar batman movie that is incredible Mm -hmm. so i think with him you know steering the ship i think it'll be good but for instance they're doing this new joker movie which is like 50 million dollars i don't know why it exists it's not in the context of the dc film universe it's its own thing it's a different cast joker joaquin phoenix it's got a compelling cast involved the set photos are weird i don't know what they're going for well he looks exactly like a joker out of the bronze age though i mean Uh, yeah kind of yeah he really does yeah, or the Mego doll or something. He looks like yeah. a classic and he's wearing Joker. face paint. It's not, you know, like it's not acid wash, so that's interesting. Right. But but Bruce Wayne's like a little kid and he's hanging out with Thomas Wayne. So I don't like like Joker's going to be he's like 50. <laughs> he's going to be hmm. like 100 by the time Batman is Batman. I don't, I don't understand. I don't I, I just don't. I mean, I I have a feeling that that's going to be a really good movie. It's going to be critically acclaimed. It might win an award or something, but I just don't understand the point. I don't understand why you would risk confusing people either. Because the dollars. It's got Batman. Batman, anything tied to Batman is worth money. Also, there's a New Gods movie in development by a lady who requested it. I can't remember her name. That is absolutely insane. Yeah, she did A Wrinkle in Time, which apparently wasn't great, but no, her other work it's, is. It's not a good so, movie. I watched it with we'll my daughter. See. It's not a good movie at all. Yeah, that's what I hear. But I don't know. That was a big movie. Studio was involved. We we don't know. But, I mean, <laughs> that's the worry with Warner Brothers. So <laughs> Right. Exactly. I don't know. Exactly. But the fact that she's so passionate about the characters, and she's all, about, all over Twitter talking about New Gods all the time. Yeah. So it seems like that's going to happen. So, and I want it bad. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see a new God's movie. I just don't yeah. know if DC knows how to make one. What I would love to see, well, and a lot of people don't know how to write a new God's comic, new God's comic. So, I mean, it's tough. I mean, if you're not Jack Kirby, it's tough to get those characters. So what I think would be smart move for DC as they develop these movies is to sort of steal the Thor Ragnarok model, which is the, oh, yeah. the te- team up the buddies. You know, give us an Aquaman, Aquaman 2 with Cyborg or something. Well, I really, I I have a feeling that Flash is going to end up being a Flash and Cyborg team up movie. I really do. Because those guys had chemistry. They They did. so well together. And Cyborg, I hate it. I hate to say it, but he's not going to get his own movie now. Um, Because Justice League just had to, you know, really kill it for that to happen. But he's got to stick around. That dude's too good. And I think, I think that his arc is so similar to Flash's that they might as well just make that a team up movie. You know, I mean. It just makes too much sense. It does, but that's that's where I'm going. Though is that's another risk because neither one of those are a successful film property. Whereas if, like, let's say Aquaman blows well, it out the door, well, nothing is until it is. Okay, well, all right. So maybe Wonder Woman four is mm-hmm. you know Wonder. It's a Wonder Woman and Flash movie. You know is what I'm saying is you know team Fair. these characters up with one property they know is successful. Do a do a Batman and I don't know. Uh, there's not a lot of characters to team up here, but you know a Batman and 
I guess Flash and Flash and Cyborg are really the two that are hanging out there, aren't they? Or bring Superman, make a Superman we'll and Flash movie. Well, see, that's what they were hoping Justice League would do. So I don't know. Yeah. All right. Well. All right. So we we've been we've been going on here quite a bit, and uh, this episode's going a lot longer than I thought already. And now we got to the meat. This is the big one, folks. <laughs> BVS. Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice from 2016. I've heard it called the Dawn of the Dumpster Fire or, or whatever it was called by some of our friends. This movie has got some hate behind it. All right. So you've got your you've got your work cut out for you here. So we're just going to start diving into these. First one comes from Reddit, of course. It's too much in one movie. What they wrote was trying to cram every popular graphic novel into one movie is stupid. Batman versus Superman is The Death of Superman and The Dark Knight Returns smashed together with Lex Luthor and Wonder Woman. Of course it was going to be a mess. That's the that's what the people say. What do you how do you respond? I think it's too much in one movie only if you aren't a fan of epics like Excalibur, which BVS is clearly modeled after, but I suppose it depends on your capacity for processing information. So I can't speak for everybody, but there is a lot going on with interwoven plots and subplots, but I could say the same for the Nolan films. In fact, I could say the same for a lot of films, a lot of which are successful. I don't think it's too much. I also don't think that they were doing The Dark Knight Returns. I think it had tiny elements of it. I think Dark Knight Rises had way more in common with Dark Knight Returns than BVS did. But saying, oh, it had Wonder Woman in it, and it had Lex Luthor. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. It had it had multiple characters. Oh, no. You can't have a movie with more than two characters. That's insane. So, I think, I think it gave everyone ample time for development. Wonder Woman wasn't a main player. She's just kind of like... She's similar-ish to how Black Widow was introduced in Iron Man 2. Like, she's just on the fringe, and she shows up when she's needed, but she's not the focus of the movie. But she's there to set up things that are coming later. But she's not really... I mean, really, this movie is about three people. It's about Lex, Superman, and Batman. That's really the crux of the movie. So, no, I don't think too much is going on. But maybe you just have to be ADHD like I am. I don't know. <laughs> well, I'll call you on your crap about one of these things just okay. now. Bring you said this movie is not Dark Knight Returns. It absolutely is trying to focus on Dark Knight Returns. It's an older Batman. It's a ba- it's, it's an older Batman who's struggling to come back. It's him in the freaking suit from Dark Knight Returns. Well, they promote. Right there. He's not Hold trying on. to come back because he never quit. Okay, fine. He didn't quit, but he's an older Batman who's he's trying to play to a new stage. Let's put it that way. He's he's going on to take on Superman rather than just doing Gotham. He is when they promoted this movie in you know the San Diego Comic Con. They when they first announced it, they read quotes from Dark Knight Returns. Mm-hmm. This movie was absolutely banking on Dark Knight Returns because it had a fight between Batman and Superman and nothing yes. else. There's no Batman driving a race car trying to kill himself. Batman's (laughs) not so freaking old that he's got all gray hair. There's no mutants. There's no uprising. There's no Batman fighting a gang, driving a giant tank, shooting rubber bullets at people. None of that's taking place. So two... Two elements so far from Batman Returns, one of which is just Batman's old, which is not exclusive to just that story. And the other is which Batman fights Superman. Okay, I'll give you that. That one little bit. There's no green arrow in there, so it's not even the same fight. I mean, it's just, you know, there's no Robin. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Now, he is driving a bit of a tank, though. It's like a Corvette with mud tires on it. It's not really a tank. And if he's driving a, if he's shooting rubber bullets in Dark Knight Returns, well, he's shooting real bullets in this one. He kills people, bro. So, but, all right. So the next, uh, next comic is Dark Nightmares. This one comes from, uh, I don't even know how to say this guy's name. John Negroni's website. It looks like johnnegroni.com. 
He writes, Bruce Wayne dreams about a future in which aliens have invaded Earth and Superman leads them, killing everyone in sight. This came out of nowhere, with no buildup or hint as to what was happening, losing most of the audience and even the comic book fans familiar with the story. It also lacked any purpose. Bruce Wayne had already already wanted to take Superman down, so this just made him more mad? Except it never was never mentioned again and clearly only exists to set up future movies. Also, how can Bruce Wayne see the future at all? Is someone giving him this ability off screen? If so, it's a failure of the movie as a movie that we have no idea what's going on here. All right. The people have spoken, and I tend to agree with this one. How would you respond? Well, it's hard to comment a lot on this because the payoff was cut from Justice League. Okay. You mentioned that earlier. True. So it doesn't go anywhere. And that's a real shame because I really wanted to see why that happens. I have some ideas. I've read some, you know, supposed reports on what it was supposed to be, but I really wanted to see that really bad, but we didn't get it. That said, there was buildup. The movie begins with a Batman nightmare. It leads to a second one in Martha's tomb. And it finishes off with the K-N-I-G-H-T mare with parademons in it. Now, mm-hmm. why Bruce was able to, to predict parademons, I don't have a freaking clue. Because we never got that explanation. But his dreams of Superman turning evil, uh, that is showing a progression through his nightmares throughout the movie. It starts with him and his fears when he watches his parents die. And then the second dream is his fears at his mother's tomb of the bat creature bursting out and trying to consume him. That's the fear that the bat persona, the Batman idea is consuming him. And then the third one is the culmination of all of his fears that have been expressed throughout the whole movie about Superman, because Batman's progressively going more insane as the movie goes on. He is going further and further over the edge and he's, he's verbalizing all of this to Alfred. Actually, Alfred's verbalizing more of it than Bruce is. Mm Mm-hmm. Talking about, you know, this is the thing that that, uh, the hate, the rage, the helplessness that uh, turns men cruel. You know, he's trying to pull Bruce back, but Bruce is just going, going, going right off that cliff. And that last nightmare, uh, yes, it has parademons. But aside from that stuff and the boom tubes in the background, which I don't have an explanation for, it's just the culmination of his fears about Superman coming true. And it's just reinforcing his need to do something about it, which is kicked into another gear when flash shows up and says what he says after he wakes up i was gonna say there's the other one with flash which is like a waking nightmare yeah Yeah, that's not a dream that literally happened flash literally traveled from the future to tell bruce that lois is going to be the key but all that was cut out of justice league now lois was the key but it, it didn't happen like it was supposed to happen i'll just put it that way Okay. All right. So it sounds like the people are a little bit right in this one, that the the nightmares don't work. Yeah. If you look at the movie in in a vacuum with nothing else... I, like, if you're not a DC fan and you're watching this movie and suddenly you see flying bug people and fire pillars and then Superman pushes his hands through Batman's chest, you're like, what the hell was that? And then it's never referenced again? I totally understand that. Totally yeah. get it. So, I yeah, mean, I'm, I'm about 50-50 on it. I think us diehard fans understood what was, ha- what was happening as far as why he was seeing these kinds of visions, but it still didn't didn't come together because you're right there was no payoff later all right so next one and this is a big one people talk about this one all the time the bomb in the wheelchair all right this one comes from vox.com vox.com and they say the capital bombing sequence is a mess on a number of levels but it all falls apart once you realize that superman could almost certainly hear the bomb inside wallace's wheelchair 
Now, there is a follow-up, so we'll, we'll read them both, and you can address them both at the same time. This one is after the bomb explodes. Again, this is johnagroni.com. He says, when the courtroom explodes, everyone inside is obviously killed instantly, but there are undoubtedly a large number of people in the surrounding area and inside the building who certainly need help and haven't died yet. But instead of springing into action and trying to stop the fire, Superman sulks in the courtroom and does nothing. All right. The people have spoken. What does the defense have to say about this? Well, believe it or not, Superman's still mostly a rookie when it comes to these big threats. Uh, he still hasn't learned any tacti- tactical routines. He, he's not a soldier. He, he's not Batman. He doesn't walk into a room and immediately figure out where all the exits are, think about all the possibilities of what each person could be carrying, what they could do, all of this. He's just not that kind of guy because he doesn't have to be. He's a big, strong Superman. However... He also believed he was in a trustworthy, safe place. He had no reason to believe somebody would put a bomb in there. He was at a congressional hearing in broad daylight and in one of the most secure cities on Earth. If he's supposed to be triggered by a ticking clock sound or bombs, think about how many watches and clocks were in that building in his vicinity. That's interesting. Okay. So he knows his mother taught him to focus on what he wanted to hear, but he'd have to think ahead and be like, oh, I need to be looking. I need to sweep this room for a bomb. It never crosses his mind. Okay. Because again, we're watching the development of him into Superman. And then in the extended cut, we learn that the bomb was encased in lead, which is why he didn't see it. Because the guy's wheelchair was encased in lead. Luther knew that. Luther knew what he was doing. And Superman was still fairly naive about a lot of things at that point. So he's like, well, it's a congressional hearing. They got metal detectors. You know, there's military everywhere. I mean, these are the most important people in the country. There's probably not going to be a bomb in here. And then kaboom. Uh, as for after the bomb explodes and he just takes off or he just right. stands there looking sad, well, the extended cut fixes that too. It shows Superman tending to the injured. Next. Really? Yeah, he totally does. He flies in, uh, he flies a person down to the uh, paramedics outside and he's, you know, checking on people and then he hears something and he flies off to go do something else. But yeah, he definitely is shown helping people. He doesn't just stand there like, oh man, they blew me up, and then he just like goes home to sulk. Like there's a there's a transition there, but you know you got to hit those Warner Brothers mandated time. <laughs> you know you got you got to cut it just right. You know, I told myself I didn't want to see the extended scene of BVS because I want, didn't want to see more, but maybe I need to. Man, it is it is infinitely a better movie. It is so much better. Here's my history of BVS, real quick, just to, to in full disclosure for the audience. I walked out of BVS actually pretty happy. I was pretty happy with the movie. I had some some squabbles, but for the most part, I enjoyed it. And you and I spent that night actually texting each other back and forth with shared admiration for the film. Mm-hmm. And then, um, as time went by, I started souring on the movie. Like, the memory... poisoned by the well. I don't know about that. I don't know. I, I, think there, I think some of these gripes are legitimate. I do. And I struggled with it. But then, about, I don't know, four or five months ago? No, maybe even a little bit longer. My daughter and I watched it together because she was getting ready for Justice League. And I said, oh, you got to see BVS first. She's like, no, I don't. I've heard bad things about a dad. <laughs> and I'm like, you, you have to watch it first. So I made her watch it. And I enjoyed it kind of again. You know, I still saw these, I still saw these flaws, though, that I was seeing now that we're kind of covering some of them now. But I enjoyed it again. So maybe I'm up for the extended cut. Maybe so. I think I you should give it a shot. The editing's way better. The order of things is better. A lot of scenes breathe more. I, it, I'm going to get into the, some of these later. But, I mean, it's just 
Superman gets character development. I mean, it's it's important stuff. Like you you'll sit there watching the movie, like, oh my god, why was that cut? Just why? There were okay. reviewers online, which we've already established. Prince said the internet's over, but there were reviewers <laughs> online who went back and edited their review and was like, I was wrong about this movie. But I could only judge what they gave me. They were like, this is the movie that should have been in theaters. Interesting. Okay. And there's like one F-bomb that has no need whatsoever. And I think that's why it's rated R. Also, you see naked Bruce Wayne in the shower from behind, which I don't think that was necessary. I don't mind it, but whatever. And I think that's the only reason that the extended cuts really are. Hmm. Uh, but it's way, way better. Lex is way better. Everything's better. It's just better. Well, they probably wanted the R because this was after Deadpool, right? So they probably wanted the R just because there was a, a, a cachet about it at the time. I, I, I don't know if it was after Deadpool or not, to be honest I, with you. I thought so. I don't know. So I, I will say also, because I, I went on record. Oh, I didn't go on record. I found out about the casting of Ben Affleck for hmm. BVS while I was on the air recording a podcast. Um <laughs> So there is a legitimate recorded moment on, I don't remember what show it was on, I think it was one of ours, where I just laughed myself hysterically about him being cast as Batman. I just thought it was a joke. I thought it was a miserable idea. You got to be kidding me. He's already been Daredevil. He's already been Superman. Now he's Batman. This is ridiculous. He was great. I like Ben Affleck. My favorite Batman ever. He was really good. And for the first time, they got his suit right. He looks like Batman, you know? Yes, thank God. So they really did a good job. a long time coming. I know, right? All right. So let's get back into these. So more comments about BVS. The next one, the movie grinds to a halt for Wonder Woman to check her email. So um, the audience, so this comes from Reddit, the audience had to sit through Wonder Woman reading her email and watching videos. What? There's a reason Marvel did post-credit scenes and not pausing the movie for fan service. So people have spoken. What would you say is the defense? Well, it's not really just fan service. Now, it does have to exist because you have to get to Justice League. Sure. So, I mean, you got to do it. And there may be a smoother way to do it, but I, I, I've racked my brain. I can't really think of one, but I'm not Zack Snyder, so maybe I just don't have that gift. But <laughs> it's a lot better than the extended cut. It happens at a better place, smoother. I admit it's a bit of diversion, but it's necessary. It's the catalyst for pretty much what, most of what happens afterward, because in the back of Bruce's mind, he's dealing with the fact that, oh my God, there's more supermans out there so to speak Mm -hmm. and bvs is a lot about bruce wayne having to accept that he's living in the world he didn't think he was living in okay and you know bruce's whole thing is about i've got to control everything you know and i'll reference this later there's the quote where he tells superman he's like my parents taught me a lesson that the world only makes sense if you force it to i mean bruce wayne like i said earlier he's the guy that walks into a room and he immediately figures out where all the exits are everything in the room that can be used as a weapon everything that can be used as a projectile he figures out he psychoanalyzes everybody in the room to try to predict what their behavior might be in the future he tries to think of every bad thing that could possibly happen and then figure out a solution for it so that if it does he's already on top of it mm-hmm. so he does this with the whole world so you imagine what he's going through when he finds out that he's talking to a woman who's hundreds of years old he's trying to kill or been trying to kill a guy who's a literal alien from outer space that shoots literal lasers out of his eyeballs <laughs> There's a man who lives in the freaking ocean and breathes under there. There's a guy who is so fast that the video cameras can't capture him. There's a dude who merged with a metal box that lifted itself and pulsed and turned him into a robot guy. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is a lot for a guy to take. And then he's got to go fight Doomsday. (laughs) (laughs) 
You know what I'm saying? And then by the end of the movie, he's at the point where, you know, I was trying to push people away. I was trying to isolate myself and kill Superman and remove all these threats. And he's like, there's way bigger threats out there. He's not my enemy. And we've got to make a team. We've got to come together and we've got to make a team, which Batman hasn't had a team, presumably, since Robin died. Right. That's a big step for him. So it exists for a reason. But a lot of the things in this movie are subtle. A lot of these things are really thin threads that carry through and they all kind of culminate later. But you have to be, I mean, this is a movie you have to watch multiple times to really get everything. Well, this, this scene was not subtle. I'll tell you that, though. You oh, say yeah, there was that, a, that wasn't this, subtle. This is very but over it, the head. But, it, but its purpose was subtle. The, oh, well, okay. It, it, it was, it, I agree that it was necessary. You couldn't have waited till the end because otherwise Bruce pulling a team together wouldn't make sense. But, uh, or I don't know. Actually, maybe you could have done it as foreshadowing and then show. I don't don't think so. Like, where would you, where would you put it in this movie if you don't put it there? Well, no, if you do, do the outro scenes where, you know, at the end where Bruce just, you know, she says, you know, we need to do something or whatever. And he goes, no, we can put together a team. And she'd be like, what are you talking about? And he'd be like, I've got some ideas. And then you do end cut scenes where he's watching it. But you have to end the whole thread where he's been, she's been trying to get that picture of, of Steve Trevor back, which you don't understand why that means so much until right. you watch Wonder Woman. But, I mean, it's got to close that book and then lead them forward. It's, it, I think it had a lot to do with why Wonder Woman decided to stick around and fight Doomsday later. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of little tendrils coming out of it. It's just, you know, it's just not so blatant, I suppose. Well, I do like that the LexCorp marketing team was uh, on board with created making... everybody's logos. Created everyone's logos. That was <laughs> Great. That was wonderful. Yeah, I'll, so. I'll give you that. That was that was cheap, but I, I don't. I ain't mad at it. <laughs> All right. So uh, next comment is about Doomsday. All right. So this one comes from BusinessInsider.com, and they say fans think Doomsday looks like a warped version of the live-action Ninja Turtles. Others thought he resembled Marvel's Incredible Hulk villain Abomination from the 2008 movie. Still, other fans see a troll from the Lord of the Rings franchise. Bottom line: the fans didn't like the way he looked, and that the CG. I was bad. So we talked a little bit about CGI already. How'd you feel about Doomsday as a CGI? Oh no, a giant CGI monster looks like a giant CGI monster. The horror <laughs> ever shall we do. <laughs> I would say a lack aside from his lack of hair, Doomsday looked like freaking Doomsday. I think this is nitpicky as hell. I don't think the CGI on him is bad at all. Most of it's happening at night, so he blends in pretty well with the environment. It's like I just <laughs> I mean, would you rather have a guy in a suit as Doomsday? I don't think he's going to get quite the proportions that they wanted for this. I don't think he's going to seem very threatening to Superman. I, I just, I, I think it's ridiculous. I mean, different strokes, different tastes, whatever. But I just, I remember leaving the theater loving it and then hearing the complaints online. and was like, really? Really? We're going with, oh, he looks like a cave troll? Oh my God. I mean, first off, Doomsday, not the best character design to begin with. He's just a big gray dude who's got bones sticking out. Like, what the hell do you do with that, man? Like, there's not much to the guy. He looked, he honestly looked cooler when he was in his green containment suit in the comic than he was when he was just fighting anyway. Yeah. Well, so, I don't know. I, I didn't have high hopes because I'm not a big Doomsday fan, but I thought he looked fine and I thought it fit the scene well. I can't agree with people on this. I just, I just don't get it. I don't care that he looked like a ninja turtle. I don't care that he looked like a, a cave <laughs> troll. That doesn't bother me. And, and there, there, I've seen some conceptual drawings from the film where he did look more like Doomsday from the comics, which would have worked pretty cool. But either way, my issue wasn't what he looked like necessarily, is that he wasn't believably in the scene. Now, this is 2016. This is... Me- See, I just... I just don't feel that okay, way. Well, you, hold on there, counselor. The, you know, the, this, this, this is part of the pers- uh, prosecution. Well, I'm not part of the prosecution, but, you know, <laughs> give the other lawyer a chance to talk. 
This is 2016. You know, Guardians of the Galaxy had proven you could create CGI characters that you completely believe are in the scene. It wasn't just Rocket. Groot was completely believable. Half the characters in Guardians of the Galaxy were believable. And this Doomsday, I never felt like he was in the same room as the other characters. I never did. So I, I well, I, well, I didn't care about the cave troll aspect. I did care that I never believed he was there. Uh, it just th- obviously this comes down to perception, but it blows my mind how you could think Thanos was in the shot, but not think Doomsday was in the shot. Okay, that just that racks my brain. Sorry, bro. Maybe it's because he's purple. I don't know. I do like purple. I like Grimace a lot. I love purple. Purple's my favorite color, but it's true. Your know, your Skype icon is purple. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Question for you here, by the way. So Jimmy Olsen, right? In the extended cut, we find out that the reporter who gets executed was Jimmy Olsen. What the what? Did they really have to kill Jimmy? Yeah, that was stupid. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what the hell Zach was thinking. He explained that he was like, well, we didn't have room in the story we were telling to have Jimmy, which that's that's a red flag. That's not that doesn't bode well for Superman's future films. Right. Right. But he was like, well, I just wanted to throw him in there as an Easter egg for Superman fans. I was like, you wanted to throw him in as an Easter egg and have his brains blown out? Like, what? (laughs) Why? Why would you do that? So, yeah, I can't defend that. I think it's insane. I wish he had called him anything but Jimmy Olsen. Somebody brought up a theory. It was like, oh, well, you know, you could just say that he was using that as a code name because he was a secret agent or whatever. And I'm like, I, I guess you could you could write your way out of that. But, man, that was dumb. It should have been Steve Lombard. Everyone would have cheered who got that joke. So. <laughs> well, unfortunately, he's already in Man of Steel. So yeah, that's true. He exists already. So, all right, I got a question for you before you start on, uh, as you put it, taking us to church on BVS here. <laughs> So, I've heard, and maybe this is in your comments, I don't know, I've heard this complaint a lot, that Zack Snyder secretly hates Superman. Uh, uh. Well, that people say that a lot. They say they think he hates Superman, and that they hate, and that's why Supermans are so dark. And it, all the points we've already addressed. Do you I mean, do you agree with that? I don't at all because I think Zach. I think Zach is like I am when it comes to these characters. He loves the deconstruction of them. Mm-hmm. He loves to start them at the most basic point that they could start from, and then show you how they get to a certain point. So, like we discussed earlier, so it's earned. The exception of that being Batman, because we're kind of doing the opposite with him, though he was also deconstructed in BBS quite a bit but it's more like bringing him back to the Batman we know than just getting him there but yeah. he really likes that and I I agree with him I feel it's way more interesting because I mean again I've been reading these characters my whole life I've been watching them in movies my whole life I, I'm always going to show up for a Batman movie where he fights the Riddler or fights Penguin or fights Joker or whatever but it's really fascinating to see him as a character have to go through some stuff you know, I think the Nolan films nailed that, where you actually had to see how he became Batman, why he did this, why he chose that, how he went through this, how he viewed relationships and blah, 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 how it all affected his future. I mean, I, I really love it. And I think that it is absolutely insane. And I would dare say slanderous to say that Zack Snyder hates Superman when he has meticulously studied every tiny aspect of him to put all of these things on film. I mean, he's put so much time and effort into portraying this character. And he's just doing it in a different way than people expected or probably wanted. And he's probably coming at it from a different angle than they appreciated. So they've got to come up with some way to uh, delegitimize his take on Superman. Because, and I feel like this happens with Marvel films. I feel like this happens with all films. These people, and The Last Jedi is a perfect example. All 
all these fanboys created a movie in their head that they thought they were going to see. And then when they go to the movie theater and they see an original vision by a filmmaker, they get pissed because they're like, well, that's not my movie. Well, no, of course it's not. You're not making the movie. (laughs) It's his movie. (laughs) It's his universe. You're paying money to watch what he made. And I think, and maybe the internet's made this a bigger problem. Like people take ownership of these characters to the point where if it's not done my way, then it's it's not real. Like, the Chris Nolan movies dealt with this. They're like, oh, Joker's not permanently white? Like, he just paints his face? That's not Joker. No, it may not be your Joker, but it's definitely Joker. Hmm. You know? That may not be your Bruce Wayne, but it's Bruce Wayne. I mean, we've had Batman in space, for God's sake. He's Batman? Come on, man. Every one of those is valid. Like, these characters are malleable. They do different things. So just because it doesn't... and. And Michael Bailey preaches this all the time about Superman. Just because it doesn't line up with every little... It doesn't check off all your little nerd boxes. Doesn't mean it's not Superman. And it certainly doesn't mean that the guy who spent all that time and effort creating it hates the character. That's freaking ridiculous to me. Now, I will say he definitely loves Batman more than he loves Superman. And that's not even a secret. Like, Batman's <laughs> his boy, obviously. It, it does appear that way with the darker tone of everything, yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, he'll tell you on Front Street. He's like, Dark Knight Returns is my favorite Batman comic. You know, I mean, clearly he's all about Frank Miller Batman. Yeah. And that's not even my favorite kind of Batman. Kind of one of my closer to my least favorite versions of Batman. Like, give me some Adam West and I'm good to go. You know what I'm oh saying? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but anyway. So, uh, I- I'm going to call this segment now Closing Statements. I mean, it's although you have a lot more time than an attorney has. So, uh, <laughs> Daniel has prepared some thoughts on BVS. And uh, let's hear what you've got to say. All right. So, here's some things, uh, some observations about BVS. I think Batman vs. Superman is a masterpiece. I happen to think that it is the best comic book movie ever made. It is the most ambitious comic book movie ever made. And it checks all my boxes completely. So, with that said, I will explain why I feel this way. I feel it's far deeper than people give it credit. I feel there are a lot more layers than people understand or take the time to notice. And I feel like a lot of aesthetic choices caused a lot of viewers to check out just because... Well, this doesn't feel good. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like if you can't get it in the front door because the design's weird, then they're not going to buy into everything that comes after, right? Well, yeah, it so, doesn't doesn't start with the warm and fuzzies, that's for sure. No, it definitely does not do that. So Chris Terrio obviously spent a lot of time on this script because he starts the movie off with Play-Doh. And I don't mean the stuff you mold into, you know, little dinosaurs or whatever. <laughs> Play-Doh. The entire film is built upon... Plato's theory of forms. And I don't know if you're familiar with this. No, I'm not. Out there listening who are not and didn't pay attention in philosophy class. Plato's theory of forms states that there was a time before the time we live in now. And I suppose you could say it, it was in a different dimension that now exists above us in heaven or Mount Olympus or wherever, where there are perfect things. There are perfect forms And every single thing that exists down here in our world is a crude Dollar General version of those. (laughs) Wow, he said Dollar General. Man, he really was prophetic. (laughs) So up there somewhere, there is a perfect man, a perfect woman, a perfect car, a perfect screwdriver, a perfect desk. And down here, we just have really bad attempts at replicating those. Okay. 
Now, you know, there's a lot of deeper stuff you could get into if you want to read up on that. Knock yourself out. So you're saying <laughs> there's a Bruce perfect Wayne, there's a perfect version of BVS somewhere up there and we got the crappy yes, Dollar General is. version? Well, I, yeah, but it's really close. <laughs> <laughs> so Bruce Wayne opens the film with the quote, There was a time above, a time before. There were perfect things, diamond absolutes. How things fall, things on earth. And what falls is fallen. In a dream, they took me to the light, a beautiful lie. So this works on a meta level where in your head, like we talked about earlier, there's a perfect version of Batman, your perfect version of Batman. On film, there's a lesser version of that Batman because nothing's going to match your perfect version. Mm -hmm. Also, within the context of the movie, Bruce Wayne, Batman, his whole mission has been predicated upon the idea of that there could be a sort of utopia. There can be a mankind, a society in which people don't die for no damn good reason, like his parents did. Okay. And he holds himself to that standard and has done so forever because he bought into the beautiful lie that the bats sold him when he fell down that well and led him up to the light. Hmm. And in that, that weird, which freaked me out in the movie theater where they physically lift little kid Bruce Wayne. Right. Up off the ground i was like what the hell yeah and then i realized it was a dream i was like oh thank god that was that was exactly my response i'm like what is happening because i was like i don't know if i could i don't know if i can do this <laughs> but it but it all worked out so it's all good and so that is the realization that that bruce wayne is coming to terms with the fact that the world can't be what he thinks it can be and he's off balance because he's trying to reconcile that and he's like well where do i fit in what do i do also back in man of steel if you remember when the bullies are picking on Clark and his dad walks over and is like, are you all right? He's reading Plato. Hmm. That's the book he's in his hand. Okay. So clearly this is a thing that keeps coming around. So then in the Apology, which Plato wrote about Socrates, and this is when Socrates is being sentenced to death because he's quote unquote corrupting the youth. Right. He, he begins the Apology with, how you, O Athenians, have been affected by my accusers, I cannot tell. But I know that they almost made me forget who I was. So persuasive did they speak, and yet they have hardly uttered a word of truth. So that applies to Superman when he's standing in front of Congress. Because, you know, he, he feels like he's on trial for something he hasn't done. And no matter what he does, no matter what he says, nobody's listening to him. And all of his accusers, like Lex, and we find out in the extended cut, Lex is manipulating literally everybody. It's okay. another reason that's a much better cut. Because <laughs> everything starts to make more sense. It's a lot less coincidental in the extended cut. Which also, this this ties into this. Superman as a Christ figure. Well, uh, before, you know, Snyder be before you jump, that. Before you jump to that, yeah. the, the second verse you just read about Superman in Congress and all that. And he mm -hmm. was reading Plato. Is that in the film anywhere? Or you're just extrapolating that from him holding the book in Man of Steel? No, I'm extrapolating that. Like the, the Socrates quote is in the apology. It's not in the movie. Okay, so you're you're th this is you extrapolating that, but you're seeing the theme that it carries through. Okay, yes, yes, and I feel that Clark, being a kid who grew up reading Plato's writings, mm -hmm. uh, which are mostly about Socrates, I don't know if you're into philosophy that deep. <laughs> it's been a long time since my high school philosophy classes. Sure, sure. and I'm I'm not you know up on all of it at the moment, but you know I have general knowledge. <laughs> Um, well, I don't think there's I don't think there's any new Socrates editions you've missed. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, I don't know. They find stuff all the time, right? 
<laughs> but but, but you, make, think, you make a valid I think, point, though. I think if, that would be on his mind. If you make a valid point, like, though, that if, if Zack Snyder put a Plato book in Clark's hand in that scene of Man and Steel, that wasn't an accident. So fair enough. Oh, not at all. Because right. you'll learn nothing Zack Snyder does is an accident. Okay. Everything means something. Because he's an artist who happens to direct movies. I mean, that's just how you break it down. And I think that's why a lot of people don't connect to his work because they're used to directors who focus on directing. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't mean to like put Snyder too high on a pedestal about this or anything, but he doesn't think about filmmaking the way a typical filmmaker would, would think about it. I think most people would agree. He's, he's far more concerned about what's visually happening than what the movie's telling you. Okay. So anyway, when Superman's testifying before Congress, it's an allusion to Jesus appearing before Pontius Pilate. You know, the people are yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate, like the senator, Finch, is just trying to get to the truth, trying to figure out what's going on. Superman was killed, then resurrected. He spoke to ghosts. <laughs> that yeah. happens later. Okay. The spear that kills him is like the spear that pierced the side of Christ. Or, well, the spear he kills Doomsday with. Uh, it was baptized and cleansed in righteous waters before being used, which made it a righteous weapon. Hmm. And that's that's getting into, uh, I don't know, themes and, you know, like once in future king type stuff, literary devices and such. Uh, when he's killed, the shot of him lowering his body off of the hill, I guess, is mm -hmm. reminiscent of the descent from the cross by Peter Paul Rubens from 1612. Also, there are three crosses formed on the hill behind him where he's lying dead that makes the scene resemble Golgotha where Jesus was hung on the cross. Uh, Jesus died on the Friday before Easter and BVS debuted in theaters on the Friday before Easter. Now, that had to be Zack Snyder doing that on purpose. Had to be. You think so? It had to be. There's no way that's a coincidence. Okay. Like he wanted that to be in your mind when you're sitting in the theater watching this movie. But you I don't mean, you don't think that you don't think Warner Brothers made that determination when it was coming out? I, man, I don't know. I think I think Zack had a lot of say in that. Like cuz he got to pick the weekend cuz it came out in a weird time, man. It didn't come out in the summer. You'd expect that to come out in the summer, right? That's true. Tenfold, yeah. Batman versus April Superman? April is not a typical release nope. date for big films. Yeah, and I mean, there's just too many things. Like, there's him meeting with the preacher in Man of Steel, you know, and like, he's doubting himself, and he's, it's like Jesus going to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. It's just, there's just too many coincidences for that to just be a random thing. Okay. And then, one big difference between the theatrical and extended cut is when Clark calls his mom. Now, this is one of the, the scenes that I feel develops Clark's character a lot more that the film really could have used. In a lot of ways, this film series is about mothers. The fathers and father figures seem to be pretty cold and pragmatic for the most part, mm -hmm. while the mothers are warm, bold, empathetic, and unapologetic. I mean, they are, they're in your face. Like, Martha Kent does not hold back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Clark calls his mom in the middle of the night. It, it might be my favorite scene in the movie because he finally reaches out to someone else for help because he never does that until this point. Okay. Like he's always stoic and he's like keeping it bottled up and he's just trying to do his best. And, you know, Lois talks about how they had a hearing about what happened when all the people got killed in the, in the Middle East. And he's like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't care. He, he just doesn't want to deal with it. Well, this is like he's at his low point and he calls his mom, wakes her up in the middle of the night. And he's like, hi, <laughs> you know, and he's like, why did da why did dad never leave? And she's like, well, you know him. Like, wow, what do I need to leave for? I got everything I want right here. And that's where Clark learns that his mom was really 
the thing that grounded his dad, that gave him a reason to wake up in the morning to keep dealing with all the bad stuff that was going down or whatever. That was his tether, which obviously comes into play later. Right. Um, But he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know which way to go or who to be. So he does what many confused kids would do. He calls his mom to get some clarity. It was a beautiful scene and one that should have never been cut from the theatrical cut because it shows so much of Clark's humanity. And you contrast that with him climbing the mountain to visit with Pa Kent's ghost. Mm-hmm. which, And then he gives him the parable of the horses that drowned. Uh, and once again, Pa Kent teaches Clark that good intentions have bad consequences sometimes. He also imparts the value of love and encourages Clark to focus on how he feels about Lois to get through the hard times. Well, you know, a lot of people are like, well, there's that Paul Kent telling him, you know, even if you do good stuff, it's not worth a damn. That's not what he's telling him. (laughs) That's kind of a straw man, but I've heard that so much I could scream. He's telling Clark, he's like, look, man, even when you're trying your best, even when you're doing everything that you think is right, there's things you don't understand and things you haven't considered. You know, if you save this farm, you could be flooding that one down the hill. So always try to think, because he knows this kid's going to grow up to be a something special one day mm-hmm. and he's just he's just trying to teach him to think of all the angles and to cover all of his bases you know superman he just needs a guy like you know like batman to teach him these things <laughs> <laughs> well i was gonna say i i really want the pa kent stuff to be true because i love kevin costner i mean i really yeah. like i even like Waterworld. i mean i'm that i'm that much of a kevin costner fan and i just i just want this stuff to uh, what you're telling me about pa kent was warming me to the character considerably <laughs> so this is good well, I, I seriously just refuse to believe that Zack Snyder's like, well, we're going to make Ka- Pa Kent and he's going to be a dick. And he's going to be like, Superman, you let everybody die because, like, we got a broken toilet at the house and you just really need to work on that. <laughs> Priority, son. Like, I just, no. That's just no freaking way. There's no way that's it. Okay. <laughs> but he's, a, he's a pragmatic, he's a realist. He's a realist. He understands what the world is like, you know, and he can't just come out and tell his kid, like, you know, the harsh realities, but he can, he can ease him into it by leading him down that path. And he knows his wife's going to tell him that, oh, you just always take care of everybody, Clark, which is what she's going to do. So he's got to be the other side of that. You know, it's not like good cop, bad cop, but he's got to be like, look, look, you can run free, but here's the fences. You know, that's my job as a father. I got to keep you alive and out of a experimental building somewhere. Okay. And these are things that Clark needs to know, man. He's going to be the most powerful person in the world. (laughs) You know, he needs to he needs to think about these things. Plus, I don't think that that scene literally happened. I don't think. Clark literally talked to Pa Kent's ghost. I think that's his memory of what he remembered his father being, and that's what he would imagine him saying in that context. Yeah, I never read that as, or saw that as it being a real ghost. It was just Clark's brain filling in holes, you know. As, as that said, I loved how it was kind of a callback to the death and return of Superman, because there is an issue where he goes and talks to ghost Pa Kent when yep. he's in, like, purgatory or whatever. And I was like, oh my god. Adventures of Superman 500, the white bagged issue, if I remember yeah, right. there you go. I just remember it had like a green cover and it was like him and his dad holding hands like shaking hands or something and and they're like floating but anyway yeah Yeah. so that happened that's a thing (laughs) so all right so batman's going crazy and i found this image this was a post on vero which is a social media app that Zack snyder uses and he's the only reason i have an account but he does the he did he did one of these things where he was like everybody posts things that you've observed from my movies uh, the dc movies and if you're right i'll reach i'll whatever that version of retweeting is i guess this guy's name is jalen harrington and he said when bruce takes out the spear and that's um 
that's when he's about to try to kill Superman. Like he's already beaten him down and he threw him over the cliff, you know, and he, he goes and rips the spear out of the ground. Mm-hmm. He says, it's the culmination of Bruce's downward spiral. The shot mirrors a shot from his nightmare because it's a callback to it. In his nightmare, we see that out of the death of his parents came the bat and he fears it is consuming him. The Batman is his beautiful lie. By killing Superman, the fever and rage that Alfred talks about will have overcome him. By taking up the sword against another hero, his nightmare is coming true. Another important aspect of the callback is St. Michael. When he goes in to see his parents, St. Michael is seen behind him on the wall. He later tells Alfred that killing Superman might be the only thing I do that matters, and that, quote, the first generation of Waynes made their fortune trading pelts and skins. They were hunters. The tool of the hunter is a spear. Michael is depicted as using a spear. Bruce feels he is destined as Earth's protector, coming from the sky to kill the flying devil Superman. That's how batshit crazy Batman is at that point. Okay. And in Moby Dick, Captain Ahab lost his mind chasing his white whale. Yep. It's a maniacal quest for revenge that eventually costs him everything and dooms those around him. So like Ahab, Bruce takes up a spear in search of his prey, completely blinded by vengeance. When the Martha scene happens, and we will get to that, <laughs> Bruce realizes that's when Bruce realizes he's Ahab. The reality of the situation crushes him, causing him to toss the spear away, changing the ending of that story. Now contrast that with Bruce's own nightmare in which he sees himself as the hero facing down an oppressive threat, which is evil Superman. Batman sees himself as Prometheus, bringing the secret of truth of the gods to the people only to find himself chained up by Zeus. Bruce is Ahab, but he believes he's Prometheus. So he thinks he's the hero of the story, but he's not. That dream, by the way, is interrupted by Flash teleporting in, which is similar to the angel Gabriel who used to appear in bright light with messages talking about future events. That's interesting. Hmm. The idea of Flash as Gabriel like flying in and appearing in a bright, blinding light to be like, you've got to do this because in the future this is going to happen. That's that's pretty nuts. Wow. Um, uh, and then another biblical allusion, similar to the Apostle Paul, Batman is converted from a hunter to Superman's most staunch believer. Because Paul used to hunt Christians and help people stone them to death. But then he sees a vision of Jesus and he's struck blind. And then three days later, he regains his sight and he becomes dedicated. He just dedicates his whole life to Jesus' mission. Bruce did much the same. He was blinded by loss, rage, and impotence when he first saw Superman fight the Battle of Metropolis. And it blinded him. And then when Superman wakes him up in the Martha scene, he kind of regains his understanding of who he is. And then he, he becomes a follower of Superman. Even raises him from the freaking dead. Like one of those guys in Castlevania that brings Dracula back. Now, all right, so you, a lot of this religious stu- uh, you know, parallels you've brought up, I didn't hear you reference anything in the movie that led you there. Are these just religious parallels that you feel are appropriate, or is there something well, indicating that they're actually there, that they were behind Snyder's work? When, when Terrio talked about writing the script, he talked about how he was pulling from Greek influences, he was pulling from christian allegory he was pulling from uh the classic epics so like iliad odyssey all of these things and then when you think about snyder's penchant for christian imagery and allegory i mean it's all over man of steel it just seems it just seems pretty obvious to me if you're looking for that kind of thing that that's where this stuff's coming from but i mean you could get into the joseph campbell stuff and be like well every hero's journey is the same and blah 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 but you know i I couldn't pin down for sure these things are happening because of this. Okay. But I think I think that it's so direct 
that I don't know. Well, it I'm not, seems like there's enough meat on the bone. I'm not arguing you with it. Yeah, I'm just asking if there was stuff there that led you to it, or it's just your, your what you're interpreting, and that's okay. Either one's valid. I just was wondering, I just for the sake of the clarity of the, of the audience, uh, what what yeah. where that was coming from. Well, there are things coming up that are like explicitly pointed out in the movie. I'll, I'll explain that. And those, those will be coming in hour five of the podcast. No, we're almost done. <laughs> we're almost done. See, people just have to listen to this on double speed like I do. I listen to everything on double speed. Listening to you talking regular speed is weird because it's usually, you know, like the Micro Machines guys. Rob Kelly ran five miles, you know. It's like that. It's okay. Rob turned this thing off like two hours ago. That joke was a waste. <laughs> you think he turned it on? Uh, <laughs> he may have started. He may have started. Maybe the intro. I don't know. So, so another theme in this movie is duality. Mm-hmm. So the film is called Batman v Superman, not Batman versus Superman. I think that's on purpose. Okay. Throughout the film, their conflicting ideologies are touched upon. So Batman's almost entirely positioned as an ends justify the means kind of person. He doesn't even care about collateral damage at this point. Like you talked about, he killed people. Like if people die, they die. They're in the freaking way. He's on yep. a mission to save more lives than he's costing. And he feels like time's running out and this is a bigger threat than he could have ever fathomed. So shit's just got to happen. He's got to do what he's got to do. So the irony is that such reckless behavior is exactly why he's out to get Superman in the first place, Yep. which is intentional. Superman has been through this already, and he's holding Batman to that higher standard. He's investigating the Bat's behavior, which that's an extended cut, and legends in Gotham trying to deduce the destructive influence of the Bat brand in prison, as well as the fear grip in the city and overflowing in the metropolis where he lives. Superman is presented as saving kittens from trees, while Batman is presented as a wraith that slaughters bad people. In the scene where Clark and Bruce first meet, orchestrated by Lex, of course, the painting A Balance of Terror hangs behind them. The song Night and Day by Frank Sinatra plays. Not a coincidence. Hmm. Okay. Now, the the painting Black A Balance of Terror is... Uh, it shows black figures oppressing white figures in, in a battle. But the interesting thing is the white figures have black eyes and the black figures have white eyes. So it illustrates the senseless futility of war over petty differences in spite of there being similarities. Basically just humans looking for an excuse to kill each other. Right. It reinforces the idea that everything's not black and white, though. Day versus night is an obvious theme that is present throughout the film to the point of Lex f- flat out saying it right. when he's setting up the fight, uh, referencing binary thought, which is attack the whole freaking, and all these movies, binary thought is just torn to shreds by Zack Snyder. He hates it. While being undermined with the complexities of the conflict and the similarities between the two combatants, the painting also plays into the Greek motif, which shows up a lot in the film, which also includes Diana. I mean, there's, there's Greek influences all throughout this movie. They even talk about the the Sword of Alexander at one point. This is so crazy. Um, <laughs> Lex, at one point, Lex has a Trojan horse statue on his mantle. Mm-hmm. And he used a Trojan horse to blow up Congress. Right. So that's pretty cool. Interesting. Okay. all about the Greek mythology because he goes on and on about Prometheus at the party and Diana rolls her eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is which is one of my favorite bits in the whole movie. That's that, good. I like those shoes. That was great. <laughs> and then and then another big point of contention is, or just an aspect of the movie, are the differing views on the nature and responsibility of power. So Terrio dives deep into this. The Naomi general, the guy in the Middle East, uh, he says to Lois, no one is innocent. No one is neutral. And later on, Andrew Sullivan in one of the news clips says every act is a political act on this earth. Which, I mean, in our current reality, that's kind of how we view things, right? I mean, yeah. Check your Facebook news feed. Senator Finch, 
This is how she views power. When Charlie Rose is interviewing her, she says, The world has been so caught up with what Superman can do that no one has asked what he should do. And then Charlie asks her what she would say to a grieving mother who lost a child because the U.S. government asked Superman to not act. She replies, I'm not saying he shouldn't act. I'm saying he shouldn't act unilaterally. Well, Superman learns this lesson because he's watching this news report. And what does Superman do in the next movie? He joins the Justice League. Tie the threads together for me here. Well, if he's part of the Justice League, he's surrounded by other superpowered beings and Batman. Mm-hmm. He's got checks and balances. He's not having to make all these earth-changing decisions by himself. He's okay. not having to do it all at the spur of the moment. He's, he's reaching out to help other viewpoints, people leaning on people who like Batman who may understand tactical, tactical warfare better and understand the things, the insecurities Superman has, like when he visited his ghost dad and his dad was like, well, you know, I saved the horses and I flooded the neighbors and drowned them. Well, Superman's thinking, well, crap, maybe I can't do this all by myself. Hmm. So he is getting the checks and balances that Holly Hunter's character wanted, but he's getting it from the Justice League rather than the government. Correct. Okay. Hmm. And then continuing with Superman is very interesting. And and this is a a critical point of a lot of Superman fans. And I don't really blame them, but it's for a purpose. Superman doesn't do a whole lot of talking in this movie. He does a hell of a lot of listening, though, because he's still trying to find his place in the world. He's trying to figure out what it means to have the power he does and if he even wants to wield it. No matter how much good he tries to do, he's criticized and shunned for it, which goes back to the Socrates stuff. It's very reminiscent of how our culture actually is at the moment. Everybody has an opinion and cynicism finds its way to the headlines faster and more often than hopeful optimism. So he feels alienated. You know, he's just like, why didn't everybody just get along? Like, you know, there was a house on fire and I went and saved a girl, but there was a girl in Belgium that drowned. I mean, I can't do both. And then there's, you know, there's a mother on TV going like, well, who decides, why does, how does he decide who lives and who dies? It's just too much power for one man, you know? And he's, he's crippling under that because he's like, he doesn't, he doesn't know what to do. (laughs) There's nobody to really give him that. And then this is really great. This guy, uh, Vikram Gandhi, is another one of the newscasters in that big medley, okay. uh, which which I'll give you is straight out of Dark Knight Returns. <laughs> All right, <laughs> there that. we go. But they're talking about Superman, not Batman. But, <laughs> but still, that's clearly where he got it from. He makes some fantastic points, and it tells the viewer exactly where Superman is in the film. He says, quote, We as a population on this planet have been looking for a savior. 90% of people believe in a higher power, and every religion believes in some sort of messianic figure. And when this savior character actually comes to Earth, we want to make him abide by our rules? We have to understand that this is a paradigm shift. We have to start thinking beyond politics. We have always created icons in our own image. What we've done is we project ourselves onto him. The fact is, maybe he's not some sort of devil or Jesus character. Maybe he's just a guy trying to do the right thing. And that is exactly who Zack Snyder Superman man is yeah that i would and agree I, with that I, th- I think that's great it's just so well put and i think that you could also apply this to a lot of people who watch this movie and have <laughs> issues with it they're projecting what they think he should be doing onto him and not taking the movie for what it is and then going from there well Whatever. i mean that's it's an, true most people aside well most people walk in with preconceived notions though i mean these characters are 75 that's years true. old well it's impossible not to right we all bring that baggage into the theater we all do yep And then you contrast that with Batman's view. And Batman, who said, quote, Jesus, Alfred, count the dead. 
thousands of people. What's next? Millions? He has the power to wipe out an entire human race. And we, if we believe there's even a 1% chance that he is our enemy, we have to take it as an absolute certainty and we have to destroy him. And then he says to Superman's face, I bet your parents taught you that you mean something, that you're here for a reason. My parents taught me a different lesson, dying in the gutter for no reason at all. They taught me the world only makes sense if you force it to. So we already see three very different views of power. And then we move on to Lex. Okay. Boy, he's something else. I think he has some of the best lines in the movie, to be honest. (laughs) But at one point he says, do you know the oldest lie in America, Senator? It's that power cannot be innocent. And then he later is trying to convince her to to use the kryptonite. And he says, you don't need to use a silver bullet. But if you forge one, you don't need to depend on the kindness of monsters. And then finally, if man won't kill God, the devil will do it. So the painting on Lex's wall is inspired by Gustav Doré's illustrations from Paradise Lost. Mm-hmm. Here we go back into religious allegory again. Paradise Lost is a poem that picks up after Satan and the other rebel angels have been defeated and banished to hell. So in the poem, Satan rallies his troops. He then vows to poison the newly created earth and God's most prized creation, which is mankind. And at the end of the movie, the painting is flipped upside down. So instead of the angels descending from heaven, there are now demons descending from a black sun. So this sets up Steppenwolf's invasion to lead the way for Darkseid and Justice. League, which makes me question how long Luther has had theories about something coming down to take over stuff. Well, I thought because the picture first, I thought the picture flipped over was supposed to represent his vision of Superman being the devil well, from above. It's uh, it's both because at first he talked about it and he was talking about Superman, but later he goes into the Kryptonian ship and learns all this stuff. So I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. It it could go both ways. Now I'm not saying he flipped it after he knew about Darkseid because I think he went to jail after that, but it flipped. Yeah, And it, I guess it plays either way. It's kind of like a misdirect because it's like he assumed Superman was going to be the threat. But so did Batman, remember? Because Batman thought Superman was going to turn evil and take over the world. But actually, it's a guy way more badass than Superman that's going to come mess things up. Right. But they don't know about that yet. So when Lex meets Superman on the roof before the big fight, he goes on a rant about the problem of good and evil and power. The problem of you on top of everything else, he says. You above all. Ah, because that's what God is. Horus, Apollo, Jehovah, Kal-El, Clark, Joseph, Kent. See, what we call God depends on our tribe, Clark, Joe, because God is tribal. God takes sides. No man in the sky intervened when I was a boy to deliver me from daddy's fists and abominations. I figured it out way back. If God is all-powerful, he cannot be all-good. And if he's all-good, then he cannot be all-powerful. And neither can you be. They need to see the fraud you are with their eyes, the blood on your hands. And tonight they will, yes, because you, my friend, have a date. Across the bay, ripe fruit this hate, two years growing, but it did not take much to push him over actually little red notes being big bang you let your family die and now you will fly to him and you will battle him to the death so made to feel feeble and vulnerable by his father lex espouses hatred and distrust of the powerful as he sees power as the root of all humanity's problems the irony of course is that his plan for combating this power and balancing it is to become the powerful one because of course right. everyone considers their own motivations to be righteous so if he's in charge everything will be just as it should things are only messed up because the wrong person has power and ultimately that's the crux of the whole film we have a senator who believes the power of government could somehow curb a god we have a wealthy egomaniac with serious daddy issues who believes mankind should control its own fate with him steering the ship of course 
We have a crazy mm-hmm. man in a bat suit who believes the world only makes sense if you force it to. You have an Amazonian princess who wants to live her quiet life without these idiot humans making too much of a mess of things. She ultimately just <laughs> wants to be forgotten and left the hell alone. And then finally, you have an alien who could take them all out with a snap of his fingers, but he doesn't want any power at all. He just wants people to get along and be nice. So the film plays with all these different viewpoints a lot, but I find it interesting how Snyder and Terry use Doomsday as a metaphor for the use of that power. At first, everyone's response is to throw all their power at him. Bullets, swords, laser eyes, a freaking nuke. But all that power just makes Doomsday more powerful. So the message is that the more you propagate war, the more powerful evil becomes. And it's fascinating. And it plays right into the nature of Ares and Wonder Woman, which comes right after BVS. But ultimately, the sobering truth of the film was stated in Senator Finch's interview with Charlie Rose when he asked, should there be a Superman? And she simply replied, there is. Okay. You can't do anything about him. He's Superman. Practically indestructible. So you have to deal with that. And I think that the movie is less about, oh, here's the answer to that problem. And man, here, here's a mess. <laughs> think about the mess. Ponder the mess. So let me ask you. So I'm going to back up a couple steps because sure. I'm, I'm, I'm still lot. processing everything. It was a lot. <laughs> I especially liked the idea of Doomsday being an allegory for war. The more you attack with violence, the more powerful the the war machine just keeps going. So that's interesting. So what was the solution? What was the way to beat the to break this chain of violence so that they could defeat him? How did throwing the spear or the teamwork or whatever represent deviation from warlike behavior? Well, I will get to that more in depth when we cover when Superman dies. Okay. But sacrifice seem to be the lesson sacrificing yourself for those you love okay which again carries over into wonder woman yeah true because superman was like if doomsday dies and if i die because he doesn't know about dark side right he's like if i take him out and i'm gone then the problem's gone Hmm. okay because then he can't be corrupted he can't make a mistake he can't save the wrong person Doomsday won't be around to kill a million people, however many millions of people. It'll just solve the problem because Superman also doesn't know about the metahuman situation. Right. Except for Wonder Woman. And she could, you know, he doesn't think she's bad. Right. Apparently she's right. got this all together. So I think that's I think that's what it is. Okay. Sacrifice. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So finally we come to the dreaded Martha. No. Why did you say that name? Because I had to. It's in the script, man. (laughs) I didn't write the script. (laughs) (laughs) So first off, I want to acknowledge the fact that I can see why some people didn't buy what this scene was selling. It worked great for me. Okay. It never occurred to me that it would even be controversial until I saw the backlash online. Yeah. So it's a lot like the Doomsday CGI, I guess. Credit to the the writers. In 30-something years of reading comics, I never once noticed that both their mom's names were Martha. Right? (laughs) I thought that was so clever. I was like, how have I never put that together right exactly so i'm not sure if the death of the waynes that opened the movie was a literal recreation of how that happened or just how bruce remembered it Mm -hmm. but i assume it's the latter uh because i'm pretty sure he didn't fly out of that hole in real life either right but there's a reason bruce specifically remembers remembers his father saying martha as she died uh martha's tomb is the one the giant bat jumps out of in another dream Martha is essentially the reason Bruce went on his crusade dressed as a bat to begin with. His entire mission has been to undo what cannot be undone, which is save Martha. So when he says to Superman, quote, I'll make you a promise. Martha won't die tonight. He means it. It's his chance to save his own mother, to save that little girl's mom from the beginning of the film, to save Robin, to save everyone he couldn't. Of course, this isn't literal, but that's what it means to him. As every person he saves as Batman, he does in his mother's name. Right. A lot of BVS defenders will say the scene humanizes Clark to Bruce, but 
Bruce already acknowledged that Clark had parents. So on the contrary, this scene humanizes Bruce. Probably for the first time since Robin died, and possibly for the first time since he saw Dick's parents die. He sees a man willing to make peace with accepting death as long as someone saves his mother, and in spite of their war, Bruce sees that Clark still believes Batman wants to save the innocent. That's why it wrecked Bruce. It's not the mere fact that someone said his mommy's name, or the fact that their moms share a name. It's the fact that while in the throes of hateful, murderous passion, he came face to face with his true self and had to face what he'd become. It woke him up, and he made adjustments, because that's what Batman does. So... A lot of people struggle with it, though, is how much of a leap he goes. Rather than just helping Superman, he goes on to even call himself, "I'm a," you know, he says, I'm a friend of your son's, which is a well, hysterical line. I mean, that's a funny delivered line. But, but yeah, but he's got I mean, how he doesn't have time to explain to this woman. <laughs> you know true. what I'm saying? Like, like she just needs to know the pertinent information before they get the hell out of that building. <laughs> it's true. Because I mean? there's probably more guys coming. So he's like, well, I'm a friend of your son's. It doesn't mean like, oh, we're best buds. and We go way back. You know what I mean? Well, because that, that's that's how everyone feels. It's like, okay, they're BFFs by the end of this. What the heck? But I mean, I get it, but that's I don't think that's what's being conveyed necessarily. I think I think once uh, once they fought together and Superman makes a sacrifice at the end, I think Batman's changing through all of that. Like right. he's, he's coming back. But you got to understand, Batman was at that point before he went crazy. So the second he ceases to be crazy, where he's forced to like look at what he's become and what he's doing in context and deal with it. I mean, it's a lot quicker to go back to sane Batman who's like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to protect innocent people than it is to go from that Batman to freaking crazy. I'm shooting machine guns at guys. Right. And, uh, the Batman wing batman so i don't know but I, I don't think batman's really back until the funeral but i i mean i could see how people could read it that way i just did all right and that's all about martha that was good all right so now we move on to superman's death superman enters the fight with so much guilt and insecurity so many people died when he fought zod and he just didn't have enough skill to prevent it so it's not only symbolic but extra insulting when doomsday beats superman down with a monument comprised of all those people's names hmm in fact, Superman's dealing with a lot leading up to his death. He's been searching for value in humanity, reasons for hope, a way to fit in, ways to be useful and positive, basically trying so hard to be the Superman that we all know and love in a complex and painful world, and it's just freaking hard. He's tried everything he knows to do. He's saved kittens, he's rescued people, he's repelled an alien invasion, he's straightened Batman out. He's tried it all, but the only way he knows he can show humanity how much he loves it and give thanks without even the most skeptical people having something negative to say about it is to sacrifice himself. And there we go back to another, the Bible verse. Uh, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That's like a popular saying. Yeah. Well, he does. And he engages in the most selfless act imaginable. And Excalibur, the movie that this movie is if you go watch this Excalibur, you'll understand. It's it's the same movie. Okay. It really is. Uh, the deformed abomination and son of Arthur, Mordred, mortally stabs Arthur. Arthur responds by impaling himself further on the sword to mortally stab Mordred. Sound familiar? Hmm. Excalibur is shown on the marquee just before the Waynes are gunned down at the beginning of the movie. Oh, okay. Oddly, oddly enough, Excalibur received almost the exact same critical reaction BVS did with many of the exact same criticisms levied against it. But okay. now it's considered a classic. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so why didn't Superman just throw the spear? Why did he have to push it? Well, there was a lot higher margin for error with that. And Doomsday, I'm not so sure it's just going to pierce him unless there's some serious force behind it i mean he is a big thick dude i mean true he he is a big alien abomination and i think superman wanted to die 
I really do. Kind of like Zod wanted to die, but hmm. for totally different reasons. And there's a parallel there, too. Okay. Batman's fight with Superman parallels the fight between Arthur and Lancelot in Excalibur also. Two men who should be brothers come to blows over poor communication and hubris. Lancelot takes control of the fight, so Arthur summons the magic of Excalibur and overpowers him. Then, overcome with shame and a realization that he's abused the weapon for his own vanity, he throws Excalibur into the lake, just like Batman throws it into the water. Right. There's also the cool bit of Batman pulling the spear from the stone it's lodged into before the the final part of the fight and is just like pulling excalibur the sword out of the stone oh, and his armor okay. and his armor looks like a dark knight so it's like arthur's knight armor interesting Lois is like the lady of the lake who later retrieves the thing from the water when superman dives in to save her it's like he's baptized when he saves her from drowning which makes him the one righteous enough to take down doomsday but that's like a thematic level on top of the actual narrative and then finally finally <laughs> however many hours this is i'd like to summarize some themes and structure from the movie because right. this is really interesting so the film begins and ends with a funeral there's one at the beginning there's one at the end true the one at the beginning signifies rage division and hopelessness the second signifies unity and hope. Superman's death is what saves Batman from himself, saves the world, and brings the Justice League together. The loss of his parents caused Bruce to lose faith in humanity. He spent his life trying to become what he believes humanity should be and stopped those who didn't adhere to that code so that no child would ever lose their mother again. Superman kills Zod, destroying Metropolis and Gotham in the process. Bruce runs towards the destruction and finds a lost girl, and then he promises her he'll find her mother, but he doesn't because she's dead. Later, when he tells Clark he'll find his mother, he does. So it undoes that part from the beginning of the movie. Then, at the beginning of the movie, Superman killed Zod. But then at the end of the movie, Zod kills Superman, destroying Metropolis and Gotham in the process. The film ends with a funeral that restores Bruce's faith in, faith in humanity the way the first one took it away, causing him to say that men are still good. So the parallel's really strong there. And also, there's, horses, there's a hell of a lot of parallels there you just pointed out that I didn't even piece together before now. And this is a smaller thing. Horses are really strong symbols in this movie. Horses represent death a lot in literature. Hmm. And there are horses at the funeral at the end for Superman. And remember when Bruce is walking through the rubble and the cloud of smoke and he's like looking for survivors after the building collapses when Zod and Superman yeah. fight? Yeah. And a horse just wanders past him without a rider? Oh, yeah. It's not a coincidence. <laughs> okay. Interesting. And, and, and you know who likes to use horses as a metaphor a whole hell of a lot? Frank Miller in the Dark Knight Returns book. Oh, that makes sense too. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. So that's what I got. Man. Okay, I but told so, you I was taking you to church. You did I, with a lot. I mean, biblically and everything. <laughs> and I'm not even religious. Go figure. <laughs> that was a hell. I guess of, you could say I am about DC. That was that's very, there. You go. That was a hell of a closing argument, and you've given me a lot to think about with BVS. I mean, I just thought it was a mess the way it was put together, <laughs> but it sounds like. Everything was very purposeful. Everything was there for a reason. Now, whether you like those pieces put together that mm -hmm. way, that's a whole different question. That's subjective. But at no point do I think I will ever say the movie was just slapped together or was just a mess and not put together very well. Because clearly it was structured in such a way that he really thought about this. I'm going to have to watch the extended version to find out whether I like the movie again or not. Again, I'm, I started strong. Got lukewarm, liked it again. Not sure where I am right now or before this podcast. After the podcast, though, I've got a lot to think about. Hmm. Well, you really, 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 really need to see the extended 
cut or the ultimate cut, as they call it. Okay. Well, it's now going to the top of my list of things to do. Don't I have done my job. (laughs) The defense rests. All right. Well, very good, sir. Well, folks, wow, that was a lot. It's a lot to take in. I know it was a long episode, but I think there was a lot of food for thought in here. And I think, I think you may have helped me find some joy in the DC movies more than I had when we started the conversation. And I appreciate that. That's what I needed. I want happiness. I want joy in my life. And I want to love the DC movies. All right, folks, go out to our website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. Go to the shows. Look for the Aquaman and Firestorm show. You'll find this episode. Leave your thoughts. Now, remember, I warned you at the top of the show. Play nice, everyone. And I only say this so uh, sternly because the internet has been a nasty place around these movies, and I won't stand for it here. Again, contrary thoughts are welcome. Nastiness is not. So, well, He's da- not kidding. <laughs> Daniel, thank you so much for being on this episode. I'm so glad we finally got you on the show. And uh, it's been a blast, man. Thanks. I think my vocal cords are frozen, and I won't be able to sing for a few days. Oh, no! But it was worth it. We have ro- we have uh, robbed the folks of Louisiana and Mississippi of the rock and roll they so desperately need. I am so sorry. <laughs> well, luckily, we're off this weekend. There we go. Okay. All right, folks. That's going to do it. This also makes a nice ramp up towards the Aquaman movie. We can't wait for that. So really looking forward to it. But until next time, fan the flame. And ride the wave. Aquaman and Firestorm fighting crime together. So come down. Or burn them up. No one does it better Whenever you find trouble They'll always be there To catch them in a bubble Or even torch their hair They stand for truth and justice And see a land In there Aquaman and Firestorm They make a super pair Aquaman and Firestorm Super friends forever Yeah That ain't over yet. My man! Yeah! You really are out of your mind. I'm not the one who brought a pitchfork. Children. I work with children. It's time. Impressed. Justice League.